0: Hey everybody, this is Thomas, host of Cinema to the Letter here, uh, with a bit of uh, an intro before we get to the regular episode. Sorry, this is going to be a bit of a a sad note to start the episode on, but um, I wanted to dedicate this episode to my grandfather, who uh, passed away in the interim since we recorded this episode. He was a big fan of westerns, you know, we're talking about Rango today, which is a western, even though um, I'm very sure my grandfather did not see this film in his lifetime, and I'm not sure if he would have been a huge fan of it. As uh, someone who's more of a fan of the John Wayne-esque Western, uh, the John Ford, you know, variety kind of thing. Um, but just wanted to put this little dedication here at the top. Um, love you, Papa. Wherever you may be now. But, on with the show. Hello and welcome to Cinema to the Letter. This episode is that atypical film known as Rango. On Cinema to the Letter, we break down the very nature of cinema, letter by letter. For each episode of a film and a series topic, we cover six films that fit a C for classic, an I for indie, N for new, E for egregious, M for masterpiece, and A for atypical. Because who doesn't love an acronym, am I right? I am Thomas, and I feel so parched. I need to get a good sip of water that hopefully is here, and not a bunch of sand
1: uh hello i am brian and uh thomas you stole my bit i was gonna do a water bit where i was gonna take a long sip of water and mention how this movie makes me really thirsty every time i watch it for obvious reasons like i'm just like good lord i need to have a giant bottle of water next to me while i watch it (laughs) true
0: true yes it's a very thirsty movie in its own way (laughs) uh but uh we're not the only ones here brian because we have a guest he is a censorship historian He's the director of the upcoming documentary Aberration, the history of the NC-17 rating and uh, the host of Sights Obscene* over on YouTube. It is Saavedro. Saavedro, welcome to the show.
2: Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I don't have a joke <laughs> immediately about Rango. I mean, there's a lot of jokes that I could make, I guess, but uh, it's- Something that I made the other day on Twitter, which apparently it didn't take off and it kind of made made me mad, is that he actually says aberration in the movie. And I just like I said, me, whenever someone asked me the name of my documentary and it's just him going,
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm
2: so excited when I I've I've seen this movie a million times and I was one of the earliest defenders. I'm going to be a hipster about it uh I because when I when it came out it was kind of controversial. it was good it, it got did like 300 million with uh, middle America families like my mom, it was immediately controversial because it had language because it uh had smoking and you know just because of the harsher darker themes and things like that. So even though it did well, it only barely did well because it costs so much but uh I've yeah I've always had a, a was a big fan of this and when I heard that the other day, I, it was a it spoke to me.
0: Well, yeah, we should mention that like so obviously with uh given I listed all your credits there, you're uh very much into the uh, kind of history of the ratings board and kind of how movies have been, you know, um rated by the MPA, previously MPAA. Um and uh, I'm curious, so when I sent you like the list of movies you we're gonna do for the season, you immediately latched on to Wrangle. Why don't you tell everybody why this one has kind of like a notable kind of ratings board element to it? Well, uh
2: There was a group in California in 2011. It was called Breathe California. And they basically started a campaign uh, and this big stink about how there was 61 instances of smoking in the film and how that was so much for a PG-rated animated film, especially one that um, was connected to Nickelodeon and Johnny Depp and Gore Verbinski, who had directed the Pirates films, uh, and all of these other actors that were guaranteed to get someone to come see this movie, uh, they were saying that, you know, essentially, this was dangerous enough. The impression levels, I think that they estimated that there was 300 million impressions based off of Rango and the amount of smoking. So because of this, they they stated that it should not be rated PG, but should actually be rated R. And this is somewhat unprecedented. There never been a film, to my knowledge, ever been rated R solely for smoking. There there might be. Uh, I might actually have it written down on a piece of paper somewhere, knowing me. I might actually have that somewhere. But uh, to my knowledge, you know, there's never been anything like that. So you would think at most they would say, okay, this needs to be PG-13, something like uh, 9, the, right. the, the animated yes. film, or... Um, you know, some of the, the darker DCU, uh, animated films. Uh, but you know, they, they went straight for R because they believed that this film was so thoroughly adult in its tone that even as an, you know, just as an animated film in general. And there's, if you look at it, there's a really kind of condescending tone to it just because it is animated. You know what I mean? And any other film, and i actually i did an investigation into this i have some stats off to the side here what i did here is i looked at smoke free media's database because if you're going to do anything you have to use the numbers that they're going to use against you their database only goes from 2002 onwards so let's say we, we just look at pg films period that have been released from 2002 onwards this has 61 instances of smoking in it it beats Rocky Balboa, which came out in 2006, which has 49 instances. Uh, it has more than Jaws, which was re- re-released two years ago, and it has 50 instances. And it also has more than It's a Wonderful Life at 54. So we're t- just, as, just as a comparison of the bar that we're talking about here, it has more than Jaws, more than It's a Wonderful Life, and more than a Rocky film more than a contemporary Rocky film. No, uh, no less in terms of animated films. Uh, it has two more than fantastic Mr. Fox, which was released two years prior and had no issues. There was no controversy. And so I want you to think about this and it could very well be the studio. It could be the names behind it. It could be the fact that Wes Anderson's a more esoteric director. Sure. Mm-hmm. Again, that's only two years prior to Rango, another Oscar contender for for animated feature. And, uh, only you know, only two less instances. But again, no issues. The year prior to Rango, there was a French film called The Illusionist. It had 88 instances. Now, France is obviously a culture right. that... Yeah. You know every, you know there's, there's everybody's smoking, and that's that's what most of it is. It's just everybody in the background is smoking. There's no actual characters up at the forefront smoking. Right. And then there was a Gorō Miyazaki, the son of uh, Hayao Miyazaki. His son made a film called From Up on the Poppy Hill, and this, to my knowledge, is the animated film with the most. It has 239 instances.
0: Based on how interviews with his father, I, I'm not surprised at all by that. <laughs> no, no. Not, well, and again,
2: he is no slouch because I looked this up. Uh, the PG-13 animated film with the most instances of smoking is The Wind Rises. And there's literally a character in that film that just says, give me a cigarette. Oh, right. Give me a yes. cigarette. Right. Give me a cigarette. So, again, it's no, it's no surprise that both he and his son would have the most. For R-rated animated film, it's, of course, Sausage Party with 497 because there's entire scenes about smoking weed and things like that. So (laughs)
0: the
2: the argument that was made here, and I have some of the articles kind of out here, Stanton Glantz, director of the Center of Tobacco Control Research and Education at the University of California, San Francisco. And this is a direct quote. He says, a lot of kids are going to start smoking because of this movie, specifically because of the 300 million impressions.
1: I think I remember that that because I, I do remember a lot of the controversy. I think I remember that exact quote, like around the time of the the release of this movie. And I, right. I do feel like that kind of conversation kind of almost became a lot of the way that we talked about that this movie was talked about in a lot of ways, which is weird. And it is so bizarre, especially considering the actual movie itself. But yeah, it is such a weird kind of controversy, almost, surrounding this movie. Right,
0: especially when you consider, like, the most memorable thing, I think, in terms of uh, smoking in this movie is the cigar bit with, like, the Ray Winstone, Gila Monster, and Rango, and that's, like, not a very flattering depiction of, like, a cigar in that case. Well, you know what's really funny about that is... And you are correct, first
2: of all. So thank you for pointing that out. But that was flagged in particular as being specifically dangerous because the cigarette the cigar ends up in the main protagonist's hands so for what would end up being a couple of seconds of screen time he has a cigar in his hands puts it in his mouth and you know he he breathes fire and everything like that but that was specifically noted as as okay he is he is tangibly contacting that putting it into his mouth. So we are crossing the line from just being, oh, only bad guys do this, to the protagonist is also doing this. Now, as you stated, there is a subversion uh, because it obviously is not a flattering depiction and it's played for comedic effect. There is never any point where Rango says... Boy, I really just need to light me up, as
0: you know. A, right, is it like Fred Flintstone and Lucky Strike or whatever bullshit. Yeah,
2: yeah. takes <laughs> takes out a fucking pack of cigarettes and just like, <laughs> oh, oh yeah, you know, just I gotta have it. Right. And it, it's that's what strikes me, and one reason I think that it's not just the rating stuff that kind of interests me, but you know, I I am a smoker. I grew up in a smoking family. I gave up smoking cigarettes a, a few years ago. And uh, that was like a 10-year struggle. If anything, I learned smoking from my parents uh, just because they were multiple pack-a-day people. It did not come from animated films. Uh, I grew up in the age of seeing uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven, where there's, you know, the smoking dog. And
0: um, Oliver and Company, smoking dog particularly Don Bluth movies around that time felt like they were animated on like cigarette ash covered like cells and shit like that.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, all of those, and, but it wasn't just Don Bluth. It was also Disney. There was crossover. Right. Uh, and D- Disney in particular, specifically related to this, something that they kind of also flagged is that the, the only other film up until this point, supposedly, which time is, and I just proved that was wrong. Uh, but the only other movie that they could match to this at, for a smoking character in terms of instances was 101 Dalmatians, Cruella de Vil. Right. Who had right. six, you know, she's smoking it at every scene. So, up until then, in animation, the idea was you can have smoking, but it has to be done specifically by an evil character. And they cannot show the act of blowing out smoke. And obviously, when Don Bluth came around, that kind of changed. You know, he, he started experimenting with that. And you, you get characters that have smoke being b- breathed into their faces and stuff like that. And again, it's from only the evil characters. So Rango is uh, subversion in a lot of other different ways, I think, in particular, because you you don't just see Rango touching it and you don't just see evil guys like the, the Gila monster smoking. You also see, um, for all intents and purposes, heroes uh, smoking and doing chew and things like that. And for me, as a Western lover, as a a smoker, that's just texture. You you know, we're we're not talking about, again, they're not going out of their way. You referenced the Flintstone commercial. Uh, You know, they're not going out of their way to specifically say, hey, put a fucking cigarette in your mouth, chew that tobacco. This is just texture. And so the fact that, we got a film in 2011 that is animated, has smoking characters, has uh, animals on the verge of death, uh, has themes about existentialism. Uh, that is incredible. We don't get movies like that anymore. Now it's all just like, hey, you can do it. You, you know, <laughs> that, that's is important. Like, exactly right it is it is literally just been hey you can do it family is important believe in yourself believe in yourself <laughs> right. for, the, for the last 10 years in animation right. that that is it that's why you know having such an existential movie is so important and why it it shocks me that people still don't give this film the, the credibility it deserves i think it has to do with nickelodeon I don't know, even though, even though Nickelodeon saved the production, they came in when Verbinski ran out of money, which, you know, Mm -hmm. we don't want to, we don't want to admit something like that, but you know, they did save the production, but I think because it has the Nickelodeon association, people just, they're kind of like, yeah, whatever.
0: No, that's true. I think that's the big reason why like we're covering this as part of our one, one Oscar season. And uh, this is our A for atypical choice for the season, or season finale. And uh, this definitely feels atypical, like you're mentioning, just in terms of, like, the best animated feature category is very much like... It's it's a weird award where it didn't start until about 2001, where, of course, Shrek won. And we all love Shrek, and it's, (laughs) of course, you know, controversial takes. Um, But I think what's interesting is, like, when you look at the best animated feature category since its existence, it tends to go to, like, what you're talking about, Sveidra, like, the more traditional kind of, um, you know, animated features. Like, a lot of Pixar, obviously, that was kind of the joke for a while, is that Pixar kind of dominated that category. And, in fact, this is only one of, like, three different examples of, or four different examples of, like, a non-Disney-related movie even winning, because there's, like, Happy Feet in 2006... This movie, Spider-Man: Into the Spider-Verse, and then last year with uh, Del Toro's Pinocchio. It was like the only ones in the history of the whole award that are like not Disney adjacent to any degree. Like it's it's really incredible considering this movie does truly feel like, despite it being like only about you know, uh, 12, 13 years old at this point, it feels like a movie that just not would not get made in its current state by like a modern animation studio in particular.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's there's too many risks I think involved in yeah. a project like this but for me as someone that has dealt with a lot of existential conflict uh, Rango kind of really speaks to me and speaks to the lost generation so to speak you know the, uh, the the people that grew up in the internet days and grew up on watching Nickelodeon and I don't feel like this was made for younger kids I was 21 when it came out and you know it was really i had a lot of questions about what were what the future was about and uh you know there's also themes in that movie about not just an identity crisis but feeling like you're fake watching this movie still now it's like that and all of the movies that every time i hear about a modern animated film taking on a dramatic subject it feels like they're trying to check off a list the a story like Rango, I feel like it had such a vision behind it, and it had such a, you know, everybody got behind it.
1: It is one of the, the the kind of issues with a lot of the current day, like Pixar especially, because they have the kind of like, what is it? They're like twelve point, like they're twelve, like kind of, you know, like uh, what would you call it?
0: Like a their guidelines for stories and stuff like that, right? But that feels a bit more homogenized at this
1: point. Yeah, like, it 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 does feel a bit like that, and it feels like, you know, w- this movie is tackling a lot of those, like, adult themes of, like, from a dramatic perspective, but also just the sensibilities of it feel like a a much—a movie meant for older audiences. Like, I mean, especially with this being a Western, which is a genre that doesn't—especially at the studio level, like, doesn't really get made anymore, and especially for kids— And so I think with a lot of that elements, yeah, this movie feels even stranger kind of like, you know, especially as a, as a best animated picture winner. Um, because yeah, they, they typically go to Disney or Pixar or, you know, lately the kind of outliers have been stuff like del Toro's Pinocchio, which I think is a really Mm -hmm. great also like similar to this movie feels like a more adult movie and is tackling like darker themes and stuff like that. But, Still feels like it can work for kids in a in a in a weird way. It, it's kind of a weird balancing act that like this movie does, and that that movie also has. But like the outliers, I think that win Best Picture or seem to be these kind of, you know, Guillermo del Toro made the an animated movie, and then like Into the Spider Verse is this like really lightning in a bottle moment. Um, but yeah, it, it really kind of emphasizes how weird of a Best Picture winner or Best Animated Picture winner this is, and how weird this movie is in a very weird place I think and it, it it does kind of feel like a movie that isn't discussed as much I think because of like it, it is a western and it is yeah Nickelodeon I think like they do put out stuff other than just like the Spongebob movie like they put out the TMNT movies and stuff like that but like I, I think for myself at least like I didn't see this in theaters. And I think it was mainly because it was a western. Like I have had a kind of a weird lifelong aversion to westerns in a weird way, that I'm only kind of now starting to get out of as I watch like a, a lot of older and a lot more popular westerns. But yeah, I remember like it, the kind of when I was a kid, the kind of Nickelodeon tag, both being this thing of like, oh, Nickelodeon's making that, but also, oh, that's a Nickelodeon movie. That mean that means it's for kids, right? That would that was kind of my my kind of. Uh, presumption as a kid but this is a really weird movie <laughs> i mean this is a, a very strange movie
0: no for sure i think it truly fits that that a for a typical thing if nothing else because like it, it's weird when you consider like i mentioned the history of this which i, I kind of misspoke earlier in that like there were a couple of other like non-disney wins like i mentioned shrek was the first one but then spirited away being the second winner it felt like kind of the Initially, like best animated feature was like, oh, we're gonna like actually give it to something that truly does something a bit different with the you know, the animation medium that like, there's, that's a common oh. refrain from like a lot of, you know, different animation people. It's like animation is not a genre, it's a medium and you can do like so much with it. But at the same time, that kind of homogeny that we're referring to just sort of um, really settles in, I think following, you know, like when finding Nemo wins, like the third year and then we keep going forward, it kind of becomes like the Pixar thing, which Pixar often does try to handle kind of like more mature themes but at the same time, th- that's become its own kind of like branding, its specific version of that, as opposed to like Rango, which feels like just truly like a, a mad, crazy vision that like could only really come from like a Gore Verbinski being able to do this. Uh, and yeah, we should probably just get into like Rango itself. So let's play the trailer here for Rango.
2: Welcome, amigo, to the
1: land without end. The desert and death are the closest of friends. We
2: sing of his courage in magnificent song.
0: But pay close attention, he won't be here long. Don't move. What? What? Here in the Mojave Desert, animals have had millions of years to adapt to the harsh environment. But the lizard? Mm. He's going to die.
1: Ow!
2: (laughs) What was that for?
1: You're a stranger. Strangers don't last long here.
0: So uh, Rango came out uh, in 2011, March 4th, 2011, from, as we mentioned, uh, director Gore Verbinski, who is mostly known more for his live-action movies, like the Pirates movies, uh, but even before that, he's done stuff like Mouse Hunt uh, was one of his earlier films, which was a kid's movie, but also a very weird Kids movie, <laughs> <laughs> truly, uh, a bizarre one. Um, but he has a very eclectic kind of uh, directorial career. And I, I'm, I'm curious, uh, Saavedra, what is your sort of opinion on Verbinski in general as a director?
2: I am one of the few people that also saw Mouse Hunt in theaters. And I loved it then. I love it now. I think uh, Verbinski is, uh, I know on Twitter people kind of say that he's like self-imposed director's jail or that something like that. Uh, I don't know. I, I think that he probably got too big for his own good because of the Pirates movies. I was a big fan. I saw, also saw uh, the first two Pirates movies in, in theaters. The, those are the only two that I have seen. I have not seen any of the other Pirates movies. If you grew up in the Midwest, it was pirate everything. Everybody was a pirate. It was like a pirate, pirate costumes at Halloween, pirate, pirate it, it, we were in high school. So every single drama kid was wearing
0: pirate stuff. Disney was trying really hard to make that kind of, like, the boy equivalent of, like, their princess brand.
2: It was nonstop. And because of that, and everybody is always, like, saying, you know, oh, where's the rum? And, it like, it just, it was so much that I just tuned out from that point on. And it was not until Rango that I even gave a shit about Gore Verbinski again. I think that he... It's one of those people like Sam Raimi that in the 2000s, they got way too big, way too much money, way too much carte blanche. And I cannot blame them at all for where their careers went or what happened. I want the best for him, obviously. You know, we, we don't see directors like that anymore that are willing to take as crazy risks. You you mentioned Del Toro a little while ago. You know, we, we don't get people that are willing to not condescend yeah. to a child audience.
1: I mean, this is the thing, like, because uh, I've been watching, I, I rewatched all three, because there's only three of them. We all we all know this. There's only three Pirates of the Caribbean movies. They only made three. It's weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I watched a few of his movies, and I actually find the comparison to Del Toro like really interesting because they're both guys who are are real nerds about like genre shit. They love like, you know, Del Toro loves like creepy. Monster shit. Del Toro loves like that shit too, but he loves like slapstick comedy. You know, like one thing I for- I forgot about those pirates movies because like I watched them when I was a kid, and they were like so omnipresent culturally. Like like you guys mentioned, like they're just they were everywhere. They were just like the biggest thing ever. And I hadn't seen them in the longest time, and rewatching them, I forgot like oh these are a lot of this is just Looney Tunes shit you know, it's him doing, like, mouse hunt type of, you know, funny, stupid slapstick stuff, but with, like, hundred million dollar movies. And I-, I find that so interesting, especially, like, him and Del Toro are guys who are very sincere in, in their love of the genre and how they express, them- that- express themselves through, like, action movies and weird kind of, you know, big movies like that. And I love him, though. I love Gore Verbinski. I, I, th- I think, like, I mean, you kind of mentioned, like, the idea of him getting too big and, like, watch the third Pirates movie because, like, there are elements of that movie that are insanely massive. I mean, the final, like, set piece of that movie, which is, like, the whole Maelstrom bit, which is maybe one of the most insane Set pieces in a in a in a blockbuster right. I've in which seen... like
0: two pirate ships are like having massive sword battles in the middle of a giant whirlwind. Yes, <laughs> it's, yeah, circling
1: <laughs> the drain of yes. the maelstrom. Yes.
2: I was, I was just looking now at his filmography again, and I I feel like an idiot because I always kind of he's he's one of those guys like Michael Apted that you just you always forget. You're like oh fuck oh fuck oh fuck. It, you, you just you forget his 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 whole career. I just remember he did did the Lone Ranger, too. And the Lone Ranger is like that. The final train sequence. It's just like, how the fuck does someone conceptually think of this, let alone convince a studio that this is a good idea? (laughs) And, you know, and even even I think Quentin Tarantino was just like, yeah, this is the fucking greatest action sequence of the year. I mean, it, it was awesome. You know, the guy has the juice. He, 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 no one has ever said that he does not have the juice. I think that, uh, you know, I, again, it, it was like, it was almost like he had too much juice and he was showing up everybody else, and, <laughs> and he probably exhausted himself on those Disney films and was just like, all right, guys, I'm, I'm done for a while. I mean, he hasn't done anything since 2016.
0: Yeah, since uh, Cure for Wellness was his last movie, and he's like, a, he's one of those guys who's apparently had like a bunch of movies that fell apart. Like, apparently, he was going to do another animated movie that was like, apparently, something about cats in space that was going to be with Netflix, and then they dropped it. So he's just yeah. kind of been like, yeah, like circling around. He's one of those guys who's like been attached to projects. Like, there was one during like the Sony leak. There was the reveal that like he was going to do like a spy comedy with Steve Carell that like completely fell apart as well. Um, stuff like that. And I think it's, it's fascinating. Cause like that guy has weirdly shaped blockbuster culture in such a big way with like that first pirates movie, Chris, the black Pearl. I oh, yeah. still remember around the time that was coming out and people just being like, oh, they're making a movie about like the theme park ride. Is this going to work at all? Even Michael Eisner was infamously like, no, that's not going to work out. It's gotta be uh, you know, we're gonna put all our chips on the haunted mansion with Eddie Murphy. <laughs> that's going to be the big one. <laughs> Surely. And then it uh, just surprised everybody. I think you see a lot of, like, the bigger sort of, like, studio movies, even, like, some, like, the Marvel stuff, any of the superhero stuff. Feels like it's kind of still trying to chase a bit of, like, that adventurous blockbuster filmmaking that Verbinski, like, really injected in, like, the new millennium. And I think, like, the big thing with him is, is like you mentioned, Brian, like, there's that kind of, like, Looney Tunes quality, where it's like, let's have a set piece start at, like, ground level, And then spiral out into the most insane fucking thing possible, and really take advantage of like our visual effects, and even like how like cartoony can we make like live action people be, to any degree. And I think that's something that's sort of missing now. Where like the weirdly like the Marvel movies are trying to be a lot more grounded, but they still end up feeling far more cartoony than even
1: any of like fucking
0: Verbinski's movies do.
1: Yeah, I mean it's so weird looking at those pirates movies because they are. Like, just watching them again, like, they are, number one, historical fiction movies, kind of? Right. Swashbuckling adventure movies. Creepy, like, pirate ghost stuff with, you know, Davy Jones and, like, all the barnacles and everything. They're romance movies. They are, like, they are so big. And he's doing all of this stuff. And it's it's one of those things that people, people say this a lot, but, like, it shouldn't work it shouldn't work that he's able to put all of those things have like you know that that depth performance it it's it's a weird one but um to have that mixed with like all of this weird like pirate ghost story stuff it it, it all gels together so well because he has he has the juice he just like really knows how to mix all this stuff together and he kind of brings a lot of that stuff to rango but i think like those three pirates movies really feel like, and especially now as we kind of talk a lot about like, you know, Marvel kind of going on the down slope and, and things like that. Like those movies feel so modern still because like they have massive sets and just like so many insane, like how the fuck did they do any of this like stuff with all like the ship battles and all that stuff. And yeah, it feels like a lot of modern blockbusters are still trying to chase what Gore Verbinski did because there's a tactility to it, but it's wacky, it's funny, and yet it's it's very grim when it wants to be and when it can be. It's a weird mixture, and he just kind of like really nails all of that, and he brings a lot of that sensibility to something like Rango, where like I I find this movie interesting because it's bringing a lot of that Looney Tunes energy, and yet it's straight-up Western, right? Like, he's making a a real, like, actual, like, a a love letter to the Western genre.
2: Well, and a a deconstruction of it, too. Right, right. So, and and a satirization. It can be all of these things. And I think uh, the difference is that Verbinski wants to make a good movie, and when a Marvel movie is being made or a modern blockbuster, making a good movie is not part of their priorities. Their priorities for a lot of these is to make money. And what makes money? Getting people to talk about it. And what gets people to talk about it? Having these heartfelt moments where, you know, what happened with Puss in Boots last year? Oh, the realistic depiction of a of a panic attack. Everybody was talking about that. Love it or hate it. Realistic depiction of a panic attack. I think it even was trending on Twitter for a while. But see, that's the problem. is. You have moments like that that outweigh the rest of the project. And it's holding our hands through stuff. And what Gore Verbinski and Guillermo del Toro, Sam Raimi, Peter Jackson, any of these people from that generation, they are from the generation of learning the hard moral lessons of reading the dark uh, fairy tales. So their version of morality is closer to what is realistic. That means that You know, not every lesson is going to be easy. Not every lesson uh, is going to be spelled out. When it comes to these modern blockbusters, they are afraid to ask, ask those questions. And again, this is gonna sound a little bad, but it's because the movies that make a lot of money aren't often the smartest movies. They are, for all intents and purposes, the popcorn pushers, the movie where stuff goes boom. ship goes fast, stuff goes boom. People die. They do not require a lot of brain power. Now, the best directors are able to kind of subvert that and supplant an image into you know into an audience's mind. Disney is not interested in that. They're interested in in making their ideas up front and saying, "Hey, we are for these things," and also we made this movie,
0: making them more marketable and palatable, right? As opposed to like this movie, like you mentioned, it has like such a rough texture to it. With not just like the smoking element, but even just like the character designs here are like so abstract, everyone's ugly, so weird. Everyone's <laughs> so ugly. Every, everyone okay. is ugly. It's so great. <laughs> everyone is
2: ugly. I love it.
1: It is like the design of this movie is bonkers, and it is so like I like. I, I would not describe this movie as like hip. Like cool, you know what I mean? Like it's not like, especially now. I'd be I'd be very curious to hear what people like, kind of slightly younger than me, think of this movie because it is very like, not, what people are into these days. Obviously, like it's an adventure movie and it's it's a western. It has all like so much fun, kind of you know wacky set pieces and crazy characters and stuff like that, which appeals to kids, of course. But the plot of this movie and the the, the the design of it and everything is really not meant for kids. And even I remember when this came out, like, being like, oh, everyone looks really creepy. And they're all, like, bugs and, like, reptiles and shit like that. And it looked, it was very unappealing in, in a way at the, at the time when I was, you know, kind of younger. And I think that that's such a fascinating thing when you look at this movie because it's a big-scale animated movie that is not really marketable and not really meant for like a huge audience because it's about like capitalism and the horrors of capitalism
0: i don't know a lot of kids love the chinatown references (laughs) i'm sure like they really dig on like oh man the two jakes i love it
2: can we also point out just how gore verbinski was able to make politics in a pg-rated film exciting like he, he actually he actually makes the story, like, we're invested in it, whereas we're watching The Phantom Menace, and we're like, dude, what the fuck are you talking about? Trade routes and... I don't
0: know, man. Uh, that was a little uh, kid. i just
1: like, yeah, Trade Federation. Trade yeah, <laughs> that's what like, I want. What we- <laughs> I mean, a, a thing that I th- I thought about, like, five minutes into this movie is I was like right this was like marketed for kids and everything and it's you know it's got johnny depp doing a a very depp performance which whatever but like like do kids love like hunter s thompson cameos like is that what they like like it's (laughs) such a weird way of like that's the first moment me watching this as an adult where i'm like oh right this movie isn't really made for kids in the sense of like you know kids will still enjoy this thing but like again, Hunter S. Thompson and Clint Eastwood are your kind of, like, references. It's not really meant for, like, the young people.
2: <laughs> well, and not just that. You also have the smoking. You have, uh, within a few minutes, he, he's holding his, his doll next right. to him, and, and he oh, goes, right. like, he goes, are those real? And he makes her slap him in the face. So, like, literally, from the very beginning, we're, we have an innuendo, it, it shocked my family, even then. It shocked my mom. She was pissed off because we we brought my younger nephews to this, who were like 11, 7, and 4 at the time. And I recommended this movie. And there's only like a couple of hells and some dams.
1: It all feels very Western, though. Like, oh, hell. Like that kind of, you know.
2: Yeah, like yeah. Right.
1: <laughs> well,
0: even like right from the beginning, you have like the uh, the Alpha Molina character, the Armadillo, who's been run over. And that feels like it would be, right, if I was a little kid, that would, like, (laughs) deeply upset me. It's Um, insane. But at the same time, it feels kind of like it works in the same way that, like, when I was a little kid and we would watch, like, Looney Tunes on Cartoon Network or whatever, where there's a lot of jokes that, like, you don't get that fly over your head, but there's enough of, like, that zany silliness to, like, still keep you invested as, like, a kid, even though it's at the same time kind of that danger as well. Like, we'll get to the fucking Bill Nye Rattlesnake Jake which feels like true, like nightmare fuel for like a young child. <laughs>
1: this upsetting giant snake man. <laughs> but I will say, like this movie feels like it's like the audience for this movie, of course, is like a much older audience would would kind of really like this, despite like the kind of preconceptions of like it's animated, it's whatever. Like I think, like if you sat like an adult down and watched this, like they probably would really enjoy it. But I think like for kids, at least, like it it does sit in this really interesting middle ground of like. There's some violent stuff, but it's not too much. There's some suggestive stuff, but it's not too much. But it's there, right? Where, like, as a te- if you were, like, a, a young teenager, like, it's the perfect movie for someone that age, I think. Because, like, it has a lot of those darker elements. Like, there's guns and smoking and drinking and stuff like that. But it isn't in a way that I think is meant for, like, a, a much more mature audience, if that makes any sense. Like, it, it still feels like it could be for for a right type of... Like Teenager, for instance, where you can't see things that are too violent, but you can still see like some violence. Like the fucking, like the, the Armadillo thing is so upsetting. <laughs> it's like, yes. a, so like a, a, like an upsetting image. Um, but you also have like the, the, is it the rooster that has like the, the, the arrow poking through his eye? Through like, his yes. eye. Uh, yeah. Like it's, it has kind of like a bit gnarly imagery, but again, like you said, like through that Looney Tunes, like lens almost.
2: Also, growing up in the South and things like that, seeing an armadillo on the side of the road split in half. Yeah, roadkill like is very common, yeah. You can go outside and see a dead animal on the side of the road that has been split in half. So what rating do you give that? How much of a warning do you want to give to a family audience for that? You were talking about the character design. Something that I noticed on this watch through that I hadn't noticed because it had been a while since I had seen it. Uh, there's prostitutes in this town or at least there's yeah. prosti- prostitute coded uh, right. y- you know I, I don't want to like cast dispersions but they are wearing the brothel outfit and uh, that's wild the, the fact that they were, they were willing to go that far with the texture of this town to say even like to not admit it but like show hey even- there's a-, a brothel in this town even the prostitutes are heroes in this story is mind blowing to me. It's so groundbreaking,
0: right? Well, I, well, at the same time, referencing a lot of like the earlier westerns that would have like sex workers to that degree. Yeah.
2: Exactly, exactly. They're just texture in the town. They're not looked down upon. It's like Deadwood, you know. I, I kind of say sometimes when I describe this to people, I tell them it's like Deadwood, but for you know for kids. It's like a Deadwood <laughs> entryway for your for your children, and it's because you know. The prostitutes in the town are given just as much credibility in some regard as some of the other characters.
0: Not a lot, but they're in there.
2: They are in right. there.
0: But they do, they do a really great job of especially just making like like you mentioned like everyone in this te- in this cast like the the character designs feel like so like dirty and ugly, but in like very unique specific ways that make all of them like stand out to some degree. Because I think that's another problem with like animation in the modern age is that like you get a lot of kind of like. There's a specific kind of character design for like, especially like Pixar movies kind of have like a house style and yeah. stuff like that that feels kind of homogenized versus like every single one of these characters looks so weird and distinct. Like just comparing Rango and uh, Isla Fisher's character Beans, who are both lizards, but look entirely different, completely on, like, every level. They feel like truly different creatures. Especially, like, how Rango has a lot more of, like, a bright color versus all, like, the other characters because they've been, like, in the desert for so long or, like, truly, like, sun-faded as character designs. I think it, it makes it so interesting when you just see, like, everyone has a unique, interesting kind of look. Like, what would you guys say is your favorite of the different character designs in here? Like, especially, like, some of these smaller characters, maybe.
1: I don't know why, but I really like, um... Is his name Spoons? He's is, is the guy, like the guy who's like always messing with the spoons. Oh the yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I love that. This I don't know why. There's something about him that's like it's that right amount of like he's kind of cute and like his face is all like smushed and everything. But like again, like you said, like they're all so ugly <laughs> because they're just like they're they're anthropomorphized animals. It's a bit creepy, but I, I I've always loved that one personally.
2: <laughs> he he's got the craziest line in the whole movie where he's like. I found a human spinal column in my feces. Right, <laughs> and the, <Right. laughs> the guys—it's the guy like I would have that checked out if I were you. Uh, my my favorite character—I love beans. I love—I've uh, always loved beans. I call my girlfriend Beans uh, because she's a lot like Beans. Uh, <laughs> there's there's lots of you know unpack there, but I just—I just, love beans. <laughs> I love beans as a character. I've always loved her but I really love uh, Angelique, the fox. Uh, she's just really funny with, with their screen, with the screen time that she has. She's uh, the mayor or whatever. He's like her aide. but there's this moment where uh, Rango is getting dressed in front of the whole town and stuff like that. And then the kid comes up and he, you know, wants the autograph and, you know, he gives him the gun. He's... But anyway, uh, Isla Fisher, like beans comes in and starts trying to interrogate Rango And uh, he goes, "Oh, you know, this is Angelique," and she goes, "I love beans." And it it just every (laughs) the the the, disdain in her voice. It's so it is the most perfect line reading ever. And I just every everyone in this in this movie is is funny to me. But I also want to say that I love the little possum girl. Uh, I'm I'm a sucker for cutesy characters that you know have they have the edge to them. And as soon as she pulls out the guns, I'm, you know, I'm again, I'm just, I'm done. Like that's, that's all I needed. This cute little possum girl
0: with her, her guns and her braids in the hat. I think we're,
2: yeah, right? yeah, it's just perfect. That is a 100% perfect character design. I mean, it's, and it's, you know, even it's Abigail Breslin doing the voice for it, but I mean, you wouldn't, it doesn't really matter, but it's just so, it's such a well done, perfectly designed character. Everybody in this movie is memorable
0: um, I mean, I remember when I first saw this, I definitely loved uh, Harry Dean Stanton's mole character's oh, design. Fuck. Yes. Just like that. He has the blindfold, and then he even looks like very specific, like naked mole rat-ish, with like the giant yes. snout and stuff like that. But <laughs> upon this watch, I gotta say, I love, um, I believe his name is Fergus, who is the bald eagle that has like the weird mustache. Oh, what a mustache. Love it. <laughs> and also, shout out to Lou Temple, who's a great character actor, who does a perfect Patrick Butram impression, who is like one of my favorite sort of like character actor guys. So you've heard his voice in like Disney stuff and in like the, some of the old Western traditions. It's like, "Nah, on to five years. Oh, like sure, that of voice. Of course. Love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Perfect impression. But yeah, I just love even that like with all these different characters, they do such a great job of really giving them like human attributes that at the same time don't feel like, you know, in more anthropomorphized like animated films of recent. Where it feels kind of like generic as opposed to like the the Blake Clark uh, bullfrog one, like the, the bartender guy, who's got like just like the big giant, like almost double chins and stuff like that. Or um, even like uh, Gil Birmingham as the crow. Like they all weirdly kind of feel like they kind of have attributes of their actors, which we can talk about how like there's the weird way they made this movie. Where a lot a lot of the times with, like animated features, they would kind of do the storyboard process where they would just like map out the movie in storyboard format, almost kind of comic strip-ish. And then uh, they would do, like, animatics, and then eventually get to, like, you know, the voiceover recordings and stuff like that. This movie had the weird thing where instead of having, like, all the individual voice actors in, like, vocal booths, they did, like, performance captured to some degree, where, like, they would have the all the actors kind of come together in, like, a big white space. You can see footage of this. Like, all the actors come together in a big white space and actually kind of, like, act out the scenes that would be used as reference they didn't have, like, tennis balls and shit, like, stuck to them, like, that kind of motion capture. But they actually would, like, act out certain bits of this. And you can see a lot of, like, that, and particularly the way that, like, characters interact with each other. Like, you look at um, when Rattlesnake Jake and Rango interact with each other, you can see Depp and Bill Knight perform that scene. And they're still, like, kind of, like, you can see them referencing certain things like Naidas while circling him and stuff like that, while also integrating, like, obviously the weird animal-like proportions to these characters. And I think that really shows off in the movie. It feels really unique for an animated film, how these characters even interact with each other.
2: In particular, because these people are reacting to each other. In a traditional animated film, everybody is sitting in a booth. And, right. you know, they're recording at different times, prob- sometimes on completely different continents. You know, they're just sending sending their stuff in via email and getting a check for it later. Uh, and so when you have that natural reaction, you're able to play off the intensity of an actor like Bill Nye, you know, who who is an intense guy and is able to bring that gravitas uh, to a role that's needed like that. So it, it, it's a fascinating thing to, that they use the motion capture and I believe it was Roger Deakins uh, yeah. You know, famed cinematographer, my boy Roger Deakins, fellow podcaster,
1: you know, <laughs> Roger Deakins. <that's laughs> true. Yes, Roger Deakins.
2: <laughs> hey, I mean, you know, him and Michael Bauhaus and Vilmos Zygmunt and uh, you know a couple others. Those are those are the the top guys. You know, those are the the best that you could possibly get. And and Deakins being involved with this, it elevates it, and you get that sensibility from the cinematography from and this film. It feels, if you look if you watched this and a movie like uh, Inside Luland Davis, side by side, you would be like, oh yeah, they were definitely conceptualized by the same cinematographer because of the same cross phase and transitions and the setup of shots of the way that the, the faces on the screen, the way people are framed and everything. It's like, you know, you can tell like Deacon's had his eye on it
0: particularly with like the whole scene where like Rango after he's been like rejected and he's like walking around like when he's walking on the dunes and then going across the road and like all the lighting is like captured on him it feels like you know very of even like a no country for old men in terms of like that kind yes. of like stark like almost naturalistic lighting, despite this being in obviously like animated and completely like fake
1: it feels like so natural despite that I, i'm watching a lot of the coen brothers movies right now so I, i'm kind of like really tuned into like the way that deacons shoots things like the way he does a lot of landscapes the way he does like shot reverse shot and stuff like that and it it feels very deacons even though it's an animated movie i think this movie is gorgeous like I, I think it's like a really really stunning movie like still to this day and and like especially the way that it was made of this kind of like you know yeah like you said like the kind of motion capture but you know we're they're just using it as reference even as someone who like i've seen a lot of behind the scenes of like animated movies and stuff like that i still don't and i don't understand the way animated movies work and this movie really doesn't help that at all like it really just doesn't help my understanding of the way that these movies are made because this movie like i, I would have thought and I, I think i i until kind of recently when i uh when I watched it like last year, I thought that it was all like motion capture. Like I thought it was like a, a Tintin or like a Polar Express Christmas Carol kind of thing. And to find out that it's not, that is even like more insane to me. Cause this movie looks, well, it looks better than all the Zemeckis mocap movies. Tintin is a masterpiece. So not that one, but it looks really incredible. Like the, the kind of detail and the, like, you know, the detail in all the characters I think is really important. And, like, every single one of them feels so well-detailed. Like, I don't collect, like, figurines or anything, but I would kind of want, like, a figurine of all of these little characters, like, the little Harry Dean Stanton guy character and, like, a, you know, just all of them because they're so well-detailed. And I think that this movie still looks really incredible, even though it's, you know, 12, 13 years old and a lot of, especially a lot of 3D, like, CG animated movies from you know that time are kind of starting to age a bit more and i don't think this has aged like at all weirdly enough uh, like one of the things i love about this movie is the way that a lot of like real objects are used like i love the when he's when he's running away from the hawk and he runs in like the pepto-bismol
0: uh bottle yes. that's like the- has an outhouse, which is a great gag phenomenal gag
1: <laughs> <laughs> right but I love that kind of stuff. Like one of the buildings has a mail is like a mailbox and stuff like that. Right. And it all looks really great. Like the texture work and everything on it looks realistic, but still quite stylish in that way that like we love with all the character work and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I just like was really struck by how gorgeous this movie looks like it's just a really stunning movie.
2: Something interesting is ILM
0: is also involved. In Rango, It's the first feature film completely animated by ILM. Yeah.
2: 14 years prior to this would have been Spawn. Oh. Uh, and that's when, you know, a bunch of animators from ILM, you know, they got fired basically from... because there was an incident at Skywalker Ranch. George Lucas found out that these animators were smoking in his office. He fired them all. They leave, make Spawn, and Spawn has both the best animation of its day and the worst animation of its day. I mean, it has... The the cloak in that movie looks fucking awesome. The The outfit in that movie looks awesome.
0: But then you got Malbogia at the end. The fucking, All the sequences in hell look like sub-PS1 shit. Yeah,
2: uh, yeah no, even worse. <laughs> don't... Do not. I do said not, sub-PS1. Yeah, uh, I was gonna say, <laughs> dude, don't you dare fucking discredit my beloved PS1 because that boy could <laughs> could do better. They ran out of money and it is very very obvious and you hear because again Spawn wasn't one of my favorite movies. You, you hear their commentary track and they're like oh well conceptually the reason why Satan's mouth is so much larger than his upper mouth is because it wouldn't work weight wise and they, they're trying to like explain and it's like dude you just fucked right. up. Your design sucks. Shut up from the late 90s all the way to late 2000 we were we were not only working on the CGI we were it, we had a weird mix of the best and worst and some of these some of these movies featured both it is such a battle for a lot of those movies to have animation that holds up the whole you know and because again there's always one part that always is just just like terrible terribly rendered character Or a terrible sequence because they ran out of money. But somehow, despite all of the issues that we've talked about so far, all the technical issues, the issues with money, issues with uh, getting actors involved and stuff like that, somehow it works in spite of itself.
1: Yeah, and this movie doesn't have a a section or like a character or a set piece or anything like that that kind of stands out as being like of lesser quality or anything, like even like... I mean, I don't know when you guys want to get to the, the Flight of the Valkyries sequence, which is just fucking bananas, but that sequence is just, like, stunning. It's just incredible. It's true, like, great visual storytelling. It's something that, like, I think Verbinski
0: also doesn't get enough credit with in terms of, like, his live-action movies that have a lot of CG. Yes. Like the Pirates movies, or even, like, The Ring. Uh, which has a lot of, like, CG elements that, like, really blend seamlessly. Like, he does such a great job of, like, really making all that stuff feel, like, grounded, even in this, like, completely CG animated form. Like, all of these characters, despite the fact that they are CG, there's none of that kind of, like, sort of herky-jerkiness that you can get with, like, completely computer animated movies. It feels like it has, like, kind of the fluidity of a 2D animated movie despite the fact that, like, these characters are, right. like, that Ride of the Valkyrie sequence you're talking about. Like, like all those characters have, like, these, like, really unique, weird designs that, like, really blend together wonderfully in a sequence like that that has, like, a lot of the propulsive action. Like, it's real, like, actual storytelling through the action set piece that we're getting. And I think that's something that, like, a lot of other um, either, you know, live-action animators that do transition over into, like, uh, computer animation, like you mentioned, Brian, earlier with, like, the Zemeckis um, and yeah. those uh, motion capture movies, they all feel like so stiff and so awkward and dead as characters versus right. despite some of these characters seemingly being like almost like a corpse in terms of just how like they're they're rendered like their actual design. They still feel like so lively and so vibrant. Um, like you mentioned with like the with that ride of the Valkyrie sequence, there's stuff going on with like characters who are on bats, and then they're like zooming in, like almost doing like trench run Star Wars shit <laughs> coming it's, up. And then there's also like even on the like the the wagon, how like at, like so somebody on top of the roof. There's like Isla Fisher, to, like the Beans character, kind of
1: like um, hold this, and then like smashing somebody in the face. Punching everyone. Shit, like the, yeah. Yes. I this this entire sequence. I guess we're, we're on it, so we'll, we'll get into it a bit. This is this entire sequence is like crack to me. It's just so unbelievable. Like I really like, cause when I first watched this movie, which was actually kind of recently, like a couple of years ago, maybe I, I, f- I found the structure of it quite interesting. Cause I think like earlier we mentioned like how, how Rango kind of stumbles into this story and like, there's already stuff kind of happening around this town and everything. And but this this sequence when we got to, when you get to it in the movie is so riveting, which and it and it's just also just so cool, like and there's no like kind of like way to describe it other than just cool where like they're riding bats, <laughs> you have like these like mole creatures riding bats, and it's set to like you know Flight of the Valkyries, which is you well know, the honestly, build up
2: the build up to it, the build up right. to it that that is what I think. It's like it's like uh, watching a, a bullet get fired off.
1: There's it so, is. there's it
2: really there's is. The, there's the tension building up to it, and then as soon as to kind of like describe for the the listeners, I suppose there's there's a moment essentially where Rango is tasked with. We, we haven't even described what the movie is about. No, <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but but essentially the the movie is you know aside from a million other things, the movie is about. You know this iguana r- Rango or a lizard or whatever. He he wanders into this town, Dirt, and the 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 town basically is predicated on the fact that water is their currency. So water is what is held at the bank, and uh, everybody so crazy. <laughs> is crazy. Yeah, every everybody is poor. Uh, it, it is it, again because this is a Western town. Everybody is pathetic uh and destitute so their entire life savings so to speak are tied up in the water supply of the bank but at one point story-wise uh the water supply from the bank is stolen and rango in his uh, infinite stupidity or wisdom i guess you would say to some degree he becomes the town sheriff and he has to go after the bandits who supposedly stole the water and the moment with the flight of the Valkyries, which is uh, the point I'm trying to get to, is that he shows up, presumably with this gang. He, he's been hunting them with the other members of his posse. They finally get to them. They think that they have the upper hand. Uh, they have the guns drawn and everything like that. And he said, you know, we have your you and your entire family surrounded. And his answer to that is, uh, you know, my
1: entire family... And then they all rise out of the ground like zombies. Yes, <laughs> exactly. so yeah. insane. <laughs> and that that right there.
2: I, I, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry for that really long buildup, but I, I I had to describe for our audience what happens after that because it really is just like watching a bullet get fired off. From that point on, yeah. it is nonstop action for probably almost five minutes. And, I mean, yeah. it must have been the most insane sequence to animate because everybody is moving. Uh, there's constant transitions in and out of stuff. My favorite shot is when you find out that the the little rat dude that we were talking about, the Spoons guy, uh, it it pans out and you see that he's on top of a Roadrunner. Uh, you know, that's so clever and such a visually appealing, you know, like you were saying, that's crack. It's It's just like there's so many levels to that of you know just cuteness and thought that would go into something like that that he would be the right proportion and what else would he ride in a situation like that but a road runner
1: there's also just the i think the element of like this sequence is insane and there's so many crazy camera movements and like it's follow it's following all of these characters really fluidly and it's just that thing of like the sequence is not like impossible to do in live action i'm sure with cgi and shit you could do it but it is it would be so difficult it'd be so like hard to do and it's one of the things i just love about animated films is just like there's no limit to what you can do like you can make this insane crazy sequence where bats are flying and like my favorite shot i think in in this sequence at least is like you get this like really wide shot of the the wagon and, like, they've thrown, like, TNT, and you see, like, just explosions on, like, the periphery of the screen. And, like, the wagons just shake, and it just looks incredible. But it is just the thing of, like, it, it's it, it's something you can't do in live action. And because it's animated, you can just go as as insane as you want.
0: Right, and, and they take advantage, like, truly, like, you could technically follow any of these individual characters, like, through the sequence, and get like a satisfying sort of like story payoff off of them. I think that's what's so interesting. Is that right. Everybody's like doing something, but it's not in the way that it feels like too busy. Because anime films can also have that trouble where it's like, oh, yeah. all these characters are doing just zany shit, but there's like no actual like cohesion. This one has the like the very basic thing of like they have the water tank, they're moving with it. And, uh, you know, this uh, family of, like, moles with their bats is trying to, like, chase after them. And even though, like, that sequences end up where it's like, oh, wait, no, they didn't actually have any water in it. This is, like, literally the one guy just like, oh, I found this tank in the middle of the desert. Then why'd you bring it over here? <laughs> and stuff like that. It all kind of becomes for naught. But I think it just, like, it ends up uh, still having, like, an interesting kind of, like, context. It's like where they went through all of this trouble To realize that, like, it's not here, and then you find out, like, the actual true villainous nature of, like, the mayor character, um, played by Ned Beatty, which is, like, such a great fucking use of Ned Beatty. Like, we haven't talked a lot about how... The cast for this movie's fucking insane. Stacked. really. Stacked Stacked. with, like, so many fucking, like, great people. Um,
2: It was spoiled fucking rotten. Spoiled rotten. I mean... Yeah. 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 Just the The comparison that I said earlier about Deadwood, I mean, it's not just surface level. You also have like Timothy Oliphant actually in the cast, and oh right, he, you know he and he's playing Clint Eastwood, <laughs> yes. so I mean it's 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 on it's about as on the nose as you could possibly get. I mean, and you it's got a- you got Ray Winston, you got fucking Bill Nye, you got Harry Dean Stanton, right? You know this is one of his few animated films. Yes. There's, you, you know uh you got fucking steven root my boy steven root Hell is in yes. this fucking movie and guess what <laughs> he's playing a steven root character that character is ripped straight out of like a fucking this you is you know you can you could see him in anything
0: right he plays a couple characters to be fair because he plays like the doctor hair he plays the squirrel who's the banker who i'm like that's the one where it feels just like oh that's totally steven root yeah, hundred yeah, percent feels yeah. like that's a Steven Roode character. Yeah.
1: Well, this is kind of the weird thing with is like this kind of quasi mocap nature of the way that this was made, where like you watch like those mocap movies, even like Tintin, which I love, and even though the characters are very stylized, you can still tell like oh I, I know what actor's playing that, like I-, I know that Jamie Bell is playing Tintin, even though it looks like Tintin, but like there's something about because it's mocap like you still see the actor in there. And there's a few characters like that, like the Steven Root character or like the Ray Winstone character, which I love Ray Winstone, but that character looks, he's a big lizard and he looks like Ray Winstone. He looks more like Ray Winstone than weirdly like his character in cats. <laughs> Interesting. Oh God. Even, yes. even the Harry Dean Stanton character. Kind of. Yeah. But like the, with everyone else, I think around the cast, even like Depp, it, doesn't feel like you're just watching the actor do that performance you know which it can often kind of i think happen with a lot of mocap performances but like you know everyone f- feels like their character it doesn't feel like you're watching the actor but just through like all these filters like like in like a christmas carol where you're just like oh jim carrey is playing how many roles and you're just looking at every character you're like Oh, that's Jim Carrey in there somewhere. That's ugly. <laughs> and i'll
2: I'll also say the the fact that you get Bill Nye and Ray Winstone and Harry De- Dean Stanton, Timothy Olyphant, Stephen Root that is atypical because traditionally, if this was made by Pixar, it would be Lady Gaga, Justin Timberlake. Uh, you know what I mean it would be it's true. it
1: feels like a western cast like it like it, you could put these actors in a western and be like these guys fit exactly the aesthetic right. of, of, of a western genre
0: as opposed to like the sort of the I think of that more in like the dreamworks way of like we're getting a celebrity and we're yeah, mainly selling. Right. like the anime character almost looks like the the actual face that we're selling here and you know we're selling on look look there they are in the vo booth next to their character everybody you exactly you see? You like a Mike Myers right <laughs>
2: And that goes back to the fact that this is story first. Uh, this isn't about selling Rango action figures. It's not about pushing the Rango TV series. It's not about, you know, selling Rango
1: ice cream. It's about Rango. I would buy Rango ice cream though. Let's be clear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure it tastes like dirt and I'd love every second of them. <laughs> it. Tastes like yeah. snake venom? I don't know. It,
2: it probably, <laughs> they could probably successfully have made one that was a dirt. Uh, Ben and Jerry's Rango ice cream dirt. That feels like a Nickelodeon note. Can we sell that? Kids love dirt (laughs) and goop. Let's do that. Yeah. (laughs) The point I'm trying to make is that that was not the focus of this. And when you are story first, you are able to add in all of that other stuff later. And I guess I can kind of shit on Illumination here for a second. Oh, please. (laughs) Those are not... Those are not story first movies.
1: Those are yeah. meme meme first movies. And toy and merchandise. And toy and, and like merchandise. And this, which is weird, because this movie, like, again, like I said this earlier, like, weirdly kind of marketable in that way. Like, you could make toys for like these very distinctive like uh, character designs and everything, but it it isn't only the that type kind of, kind of dorks of like us would buy. Maybe the coolest character design of all time, which is Rattlesnake Jake. And I would that would be so cool as, like, a toy. But, like, he's a gigantic rattlesnake. His, like, his torso and everything is filled with, like, these, like, uh, uh, what do you call them? Like, bandoliers of, like, bullets. Right. And then his tail is a gun. <laughs> because uh, yeah, a gatling yes. gun. Right. <laughs> it is just such an insane character design. And, like, yeah, genuinely scary. How many other characters can you think of that
2: are part gun? You have, like, <laughs> you have Ash and the Evil Dead... You have uh, Rose McGowan's character in Planet Terror. You know, right. there's, there's not very many characters that are part gun, let alone in an animated film. So that is such a, a weird, bold move, to to make a character part gun,
0: in a an animal. It, it's such right, a one life. that has no like limbs, like having just like their t- the end
1: of their rattler tail. Be a they shaker, are you know? a gun. They are yes. a gun. <laughs> it is. It's part of the thing that I think is really we, we, like we talked about it a bunch of this movie. But like, not only would that never get made today, there's lots of like, conversations of like the whole like animation is only for kids kind of thing, which I obviously disagree with. But like, I think often that whole like animation is cinema thing, and then people will post like the Mario movie or whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. Whereas this whereas this feels like genuinely a movie that is like trying to do something really interesting with animation, because you could never do this in live action. You can have a snake with a gun in live action. Come on. And I, I don't know. That's that it, it's just such it's so special. And I think like just yeah, the Bill Nye character specifically like really hammers home just how weird this movie is for being this like quote unquote adult in in some ways, right? Of having a a big snake, a big scary snake with a gun, and he's very menacing. And he's like, I love. He's he's got like a like a mustache on his like skills. Yes. It's so fucking cool. He really but, looks like Lee Van Cleef in like the right, Once Upon yeah. a Time in the West and similar. So like, yeah,
2: and it's it's like drawn on, so it's almost like a. uh it, It's almost like a John Waters mustache, but it works, right? <laughs> it's, you know. Yes. You know, it's like pencil thin on there, yeah. but but because it the rest of the character design is done so well, you, it just you're sold by it. It doesn't yeah. come off as goofy or
1: anything. Mm-hmm. And I love, I just love like uh, I'm skipping skipping ahead a bit to kind of the that that last set piece. Kind of speaking on Rattlesnake Jake, I just love that the final kind of big set piece of this movie is. The villain, who we've al- already described as a giant rattlesnake with a gun for a tail, and this lizard are having like a, a standoff, right? A duel, and then he sh- he's shooting th- those bats that we saw earlier like out of the sky, and it's just it is an insane sequence, an insane in, in a in a kids movie. I'm using air quotes for kids movie, but like it's such a weird final set piece for this movie. And feels so kind of like the the Flight of the Valkyrie sequence, which going back on that very briefly, i we forgot to mention that there is a banjo cover of Flight of the Valkyries in there, right, which
0: which, is... which I, I love how it's <laughs> like initially you hear like the Hans Zimmery like orchestral version, and then you see like one of the moles on like the bat with a banjo, and that starts off the banjo yes. version of it
1: <laughs> this, weirdly, I, I'm sorry to go on a, a tangent here, but we, weirdly what this movie reminded me of, even though I know this movie came out afterwards, is like Mad Max Three Road. Yes. It's kind of just how, again, like this movie feels like it's kind of, I mean, especially that, that sequence, having the guy playing the banjo be like a, you know, in universe thing. There's the, there's a the sequence where he, they, the mayor has like the, the, the tire, like the, the valve and he's like holding it up like, like in Mad Max. It's, yes. yeah, it, it's a weird kind of a weird reference point for this movie, which again is like marketed kind of for kids, but it has all these weird elements of like. It's referencing all these older Westerns and these kind of, you know, movies that you wouldn't expect. Or even the older Mad
0: Max movies were apparently an influence on Verbinski, and you can tell. Especially, like, any, like, the bigger desert
1: sequences feel kind of like the earlier uh, Mad Max movies. Yeah. It's so interesting that this movie is pulling all of those references, which is something, again, that you wouldn't really get from a lot of animated movies, especially meant for children, of, like, well, what's your reference point for this? Oh, you know... Good, the Bad and the Ugly, you know, Magnificent Seven—kind of these like old westerns, which is like, again, like I said earlier, like a very unhip choice. But again, like like you're saying, like for the story, it really works and it really kind of makes this feel like a, a a great western and a proper western. I think, which is I think so fascinating.
0: I do want to circle back a bit to like we were talking about like the performers' kind of element of it. There's someone we've kind of referenced a couple times who we haven't really dove into, even though he's our main character. we Because I, I think it's kind of important in terms of just the context of this person's career. Um, this is not a Johnny Depp Stan podcast. Even before, like, if you want to, like, remove any of, like, all that, you know, the allegations and stuff about him and whatnot, this was, I think, the last time the sort of Johnny Depp persona really worked, I think, for me in the movie. Because, one, it's kind of removing yeah. his typical kind of, like, live-action elements. But also, Rango feels like there's kind of that energy that Depp was kind of known for from, like, his Jack Sparrow days and stuff like that. But it feels like a much different character. Rango feels much more like this guy who, despite having, like, kind of, like, the eccentricities and, like, silly bits... ...that Depp would do, he feels a bit more kind of like... ...someone who you could actually emotionally invest in... ...where you see him initially as like this completely isolated pet... ...like I love the opening where he's just in this like... ...little uh, environment that is like completely isolated from anybody... he's literally interacting with like the fish... ...and uh, the (laughs) the doll that we were mentioning earlier... Um, ...but you really get a sense that like he finally finds himself... ...in this western facade that he's kind of created... And then once he, like, gets casted out and he actually kind of, like, realizes, well, you know, thanks to Clint Eastwood, that, like, he can actually be an actual hero by his actions and not by, like, what he claims to do. It feels like an actual arc that feels believable, but Depp plays pretty well. And they, like, actually use this sort of, like, his persona to kind of actually, like, develop this character in an interesting way. As opposed to as his career kind of went forward... You would see that like in Lone Ranger and some of these other things it feels just like Depp's just kind of doing dumb Depp shit and it's like not nearly as interesting. It feels like he kind of got high off his own supply after
2: this point. He represents the extreme opposite end of what can happen to a pretty 80 boys actor who's given the world and the absolute positive outcome is you get a Robert Downey Jr and the absolute negative outcome is that you get Johnny Depp. They both come from the same era Uh, A lot of them were in Mm. similar movies uh, and uh, they were from the same groupings. So this isn't too too out of the realm of uh, the imagination. And they also uh, similarly fucked up big time and very publicly and were given a second chance with a major franchise. It, It was all about timing for Johnny Depp. You know, he had been famous for so long and had dated so many people for so long and had so much money. And then he fucked up. And then all of a sudden he gets the pirates franchise and he gets an Oscar nomination. And, uh, you know, next thing you know, everybody and their brother is quoting him and the massive thing that he had in the eighties, but a million times worse, because now all of a sudden it's the internet is involved. And so I don't think anybody could survive from that. I don't think anyone. Any, and, and we have the proof. We have the, the stats for this. Most of those actors did not survive that. They're not doing well. <laughs> they're not. You know what I mean? Like if you you look at their the, what's going on for with a lot of these people. There, you know, the growing up in the internet age has destroyed a lot of those the people that were the first. Kanye West is another guy that was a major. Like uh casualty, Britney Spears, major casual- casualty of that era. You know, again, these people are for different reasons, but um some you know, more of their own making. Like I would say a Kanye or Depp is. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. Britney, <laughs> Britney is a different situation, but uh, you know, these are all people that, you know, the, it did not go well for everybody. And because Johnny Depp had that fame at the right, at that time, he chose Madness. And Robert Downey Jr. got that opportunity. He chose a completely different life. He did the best possible thing that he could do, which is straighten up and... And, and, and make billions of dollars off of those right. Marvel movies. And he got back this last year to the place that he yeah. had been trying to get back to the whole time, which was making serious, dramatic works. And he gave, you know, his best performance in decades... You know, and that's what he wanted to do the whole time. Whereas Johnny Depp, what did he do? A couple of years after he makes, as you were pointing out, you know, you, you said that this is the last time that the the Depp persona works. A couple of years after this, he's making fucking Mordecai.
1: I was going to mention you know,
0: Mordecai. <laughs> yeah. Like you have Rangu who is like an actual developed character versus you have
1: Mordecai where it's like, I don't know, he has a mustache and that's the bit. Yeah. And it is interesting, especially like Depp kind of, has an attempt at getting back with like, remember when there was Oscar talk around like black mass, that was it. it. Like, Oh, it's Johnny Depp's year. He's going to get the Oscar. And like, no, he, no, the movie's awful. And it's a piece of shit. But like, especially after like pirates, anytime he's in a movie, it's him doing like a thing, a bit, a voice, a character, a wacky kind of thing. And it just like, doesn't, work like ever like in like any of those movies especially like into the woods or alice in wonderland or shit like that like it just doesn't work at all and no one likes it that on top of the personal stuff is kind of why it's, he's like, always he's
2: just, doing one of these right he's right delivery,
1: <laughs> which is really crucial because like that was the whole
0: uh kind of story about pirates of the caribbean curse of black Pearl. like the legend of it was he was doing his keith richards impression which Savradro did a brilliant job of imitating this <laughs> a second ago. And everyone, when they saw the dailies, like Michael Eisner and all these other people were just like, what the fuck is this? This is dumb. We gotta, like, get him to do something different or fire him or whatever. And Verbinski was like, no, let him do his thing. And then that character became, like, so massive and that movie became so massive and everything that everyone's like, well, we can't question it now. Right. Like, this, the, just let him do whatever the fuck. And then that's the problem. that Like, that spirals into, like, what we eventually would get.
1: I would say his last kind of good performance is like something where he's not doing anything of his bits, which is like public enemies where like, I'm sure Michael Mann really like, you know, was like, Hey, stop that shit. Like, no, you're, you're, you're in a real movie. And that, but no, I like want to play movie. like Mick Jagger, Mike, I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> right. But that feels kind of like the most controlled he's been in like a while recently. And, like, but, like, kind of what you were saying, like, the thing about Rango that works is, like, there are bits in this where I'm just, like, oh, God, it's depth. Like, and I really, like, I hate it a bit, you know, because I'm just, like, I can see, like, I can see depth through this performance. But for the most part, yeah, you're right. Like, because, again, like I mentioned earlier, the kind of mocap, like, it, it hides him in the role. And also, I think he's doing a lot of really interesting, like... I love how pathetic he is up at at first. And he like throughout the movie, of course, he's just very kind of like, doesn't know what he's doing. Kind of Mr. Magooing through these situations. (laughs) Right. But like, unlike a Captain Jack Sparrow, for instance, which like having just rewatched this movie, I would say that performance holds up like 70% of the, like, you know, of it holds up that character has that kind of thing of like, Oh, he's kind of a loser, but he kind of figures it out. And he's kind of like actually a good pirate. But with Rango, at least, I don't know, there's something a bit more likable about him and, and and kind of in his naivete or his stupidity or whatever, like there's something quite like likable about him, and you kind of want him to succeed a bit more.
2: Well, in the very beginning, we realize that he's alone. He's got nobody. He's got no friends. So right. got, so we from the opening of the movie, we are made to sympathize with him. There's nobody around, nobody will love him. His life is a
1: lie. He lies to himself. Well, but he is—he's working on a on a one act, and he's a <laughs> yeah. like comedy. I love a musical. That bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I did, and like a lot of the like those bits, those kind of little funny bits, which can kind of go either way, right? They can go like depth going full like uh, what like there's there's like one bit where he's kind of like walking through, and he's like. And I'll take a latte and a cappuccino and all this stuff. And that's a bit where I'm like, okay, Johnny, like,
2: that's that is it the, down. That's one of the only lines I hate in the movie. Uh, maybe the only line he goes, uh, I need a latte and a urine sample. Make sure you don't mix the order up.
1: Right, yeah. But right. Like that that's the only bit I think that feels kind of like, okay, like he's, he's putting a little too much onto this. But the rest of the performance I think is pretty good, weirdly enough.
0: I think particularly there's a bit early on when, like, he walks into Dirt initially, and he sees everybody doing different walks, and he, like, imitates their walks. And you Depp. can see in that behind-the-scenes footage, like, Depp actually did a lot of, like, that kind of thing. And I think the thing is, like, that kind of works a bit better, like, his sort of, like, the angle that is like, oh, I want to be a performer, I want to, like, you know, do, like, the one act and whatever. Like, that actually helps out with, like, him actually wanting to fit in, because he's like, I can, like, blend in as he says earlier in a certain bit. um, Like, it feels like it's him trying to just kind of, like, become a part of a community instead of just, like, kind of stand it as, like, the one weirdo that actually wants to be kind of, like, a guy who can be, like, a hero for these people, but at the same time, like, fits in as part of the community, which I think really helps out for, you know, stuff like later on. A bit that could be, like, so bad, like, right before The Rite of the Valkyries, where, like, he comes in and is like, oh, we're, like, a troop of thespians. And, like, they do, like, little play... For the Harry Dean Stanton character, that could be, like, on paper, like, the most cringy, debt bullshit. But in practice, like, it actually really works out for, like, especially that everyone's in on it. Like, that they're all trying to, like, kind of do, like, the play thing. It works out and it feels, once again, like, he's just kind of like, let's actually kind of, like, bring everybody together with this as opposed to, look at me and my stupid shtick. Like, this is also, this is the same year as the fourth Pirates movie where the shtick just gets fully like run into the ground on that. Yeah. Well, and
2: again, it's set up in the very beginning, in the opening scene, the theatrics. And then when he goes into that town, you could say that that is him putting on the performance of trying to fit in with the town. And then he has that kind of light bulb moment when he's in the bar, when he realizes I could be anybody I want. And he comes up with the character and goes back to telling the same type of story that he was doing at the beginning of the film.
0: And it even sets up, like, the, the bit earlier where we were t- kind of talking about the Spirit of the West scene with the Clint Eastwood. Exactly. Kind of go, right, where, like, his, his guiding light is, like, the guy known for, like, the Western archetype. Um, which, I just also love the detail of that, where, like, he's got the um, the metal detector that he's looking around for stuff, in, and then his, like, fake Oscar awards that are in the back of his fucking... Right.
1: I love that, though, I think, because it really does tie into kind of that performance angle of this right because like yeah i love that kind of like almost like imposter syndrome like reading on this movie where like he is he feels like a fraud and he like doesn't feel like he's actually a hero and i love this kind of moment of of him meeting clint eastwood (laughs) basically again kids love clint eastwood all the kids went out to see sully in theaters um (laughs) but like just that sequence him like having the oscars in his golf cart is a very you know I don't want to say subtle because you like it, it really shows it, but like it's not like remarked upon, and yet it is this moment of reading this, you know, of like it's Clint Eastwood as the man with no name, and it's kind of this rumination on Clint Eastwood and on like actors.
2: The, yeah, the the archetype of it. They have the balls to just say that this is the spirit of the West and give you the idea. That this is probably Clint Eastwood, and really, you don't know what is going on in this scene. We don't know what has created the scene. We don't know if it's an acid trip. We don't know if it's actually happening.
1: It is in like this weird, like liminal. Like, is he dead? Is it like, yeah like, afterlife? Like, it, it is yeah. really, like, this weird space. I think and, yeah,
2: and it's it's never explained. And it's never really talked about again. He 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 does reference it later. He said he talks to somebody and says, yeah, I met the spirit of the West. But it's like they had such courage to be esoteric about that scene. It's far more subliminal. It is not condescending to its audience. This is thoroughly both for kids and for adults. It's it's just enough. For a kid to understand it, but if a parent was around, they would see it and they would get the I- ideology and get the ennui and the uh, the existential crisis of the characters and uh, the idea of heroism. And But it is more interesting when you don't explain any of that to the audience and you just let them take take that in. You know, it sucks when your hand is getting held. And we, we live in an era where people really want to deconstruct the narrative and point out how smart they are. And, you know, they want to have the the series saying where, Oh, you know, if this were a superhero movie, I would fall on the ground like this. Oh, Hey, look, I fell on the ground like that. Ha ha ha. Right. The Deadpoolification <laughs> of cinema, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's just like, how far can we go with this? We get it guys. Like, we are watching the movie too. There's only so long that it, you know. It's kind of it, like someone pointed out recently that like kind of stand-up comedy is dead because we've talked about it all. I mean, what are we going to say? Like, hey, you know, I was microwaving macaroni and cheese this morning.
0: Ha uh, ha ha ha. You know, I don't. Like, know, I, don't th- I don't think we've gotten to the true point. Of like, what
1: is the deal with airline food, though? Really, <laughs> what is the deal with it? I mean, it is. It is that weird thing where, like, I feel like people think that they're you know, so smart and they know all these tropes and especially this movie, which is dealing a lot in like Western tropes, Western iconography and imagery and stuff like that. And it's like, we know these tropes, so therefore we're smarter than them. But I think at least for, for me, at least part of the reason we have those tropes is because you you kind of need them, especially in a great story like this. And I think Gore Verbinski really understands that you'd need a lot of that stuff and he tells it very sincerely even though this movie has like a couple of moments like um god there's that one moment where like before the flight of the Valkyrie sequence and like one of the characters is like awkward that feels like one of those like I- i'm sure it was like a studio mandated like just put that in there just for the kids or whatever that's
2: my second least favorite line so right. the fir- the right. first is the first is the urine sample and the, the the reason why i hate it is because it is against character I don't always hate things that are against characters. Sometimes it can be done well. Sometimes it does not work well at all. and that that I think was just it it, it was against type specifically because the crow character was depicted as so wise. and
1: I, I it it does not seem like he
2: would not have like the
1: modern lingo to me. Something I just thought of like just now is like when you were talking about like how this movie doesn't explain any like a lot of stuff there's that like weird bit where they're like underground looking for the Harry Dean Stanton, like crew. And there's like a giant eyeball in the background. Yeah. And there, and one of the characters is just like, that's a big one. And that's it. That's all they said <laughs> yeah. about it? That's all you need. <laughs> and it's all you need. Yeah. It is just like eh, the big monster in the underground. That's all you need. Oh. That's it. Right. <laughs> yeah.
2: This is a, it's a living breathing world. We don't need the answers. It's better that we don't have the answers. I don't need to see that whole creature. I don't want to see that whole creature. The eye is all I needed. That is good. That's that's visual storytelling for me.
0: And even like sort of what we were talking about earlier with like kind of like the breaking, you know, kind of the reality of the the closest we get to that is something we somehow haven't mentioned while we were talking about this the whole time. The mariachi owls who pop up. Oh yeah. <laughs> and you're like kind of talking to the audience the whole time. The great the chorus. Right, our Greek chorus. Right, they they have that kind of element to them. But at the same time, like those characters could, in theory, be like incredibly insufferable. But they add to like the texture that we were talking about earlier. Just sort of like the the legend of the Old West, this like story about who Rango is. And even when they kind of like have cheeky bits, like the whole like, oh, and he will die later. And then at the very yeah. end, they have just the like, oh, you know, he might die, say, in a household accident, which often accounts for <laughs> like
1: forty six percent. My favorite. <laughs> like during the second kind of part, they show up and w- one of the ones to the right is like, when is he going to die? And the other one's like, soon, soon, soon. <laughs> like, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> you almost forget about them at a certain point in the movie. And then, but they come back at the end and it, it feels, it's like, oh yeah, those guys, they were, they've been here the whole time. And it feels so like cozy. And I, I just love their design and their outfits and everything. It, yeah. It's just, they're, they're so cool.
2: So something of note is first off, I love Greek chorus characters. I'm glad you brought them up because I'm, I had forgotten about them too. Uh, there, I love those guys. Uh, I come from a Latin family. Like my, my mother is Hispanic and, uh, my father's side is all like German Irish, so I I'm a very weird split, but I love, I love seeing Latin stuff in con- contemporary cinema And any time that I see it. I, I just absolutely love it. I get a real kick out of it, but. Great chorus characters in particular, I'm a big fan of. You have the mice in the movie Babe, which yes. the, they they do all the title cards and everything like that throughout the throughout the, the movie, and so they're considerably subdued. They uh, they're they they have like much quicker screen time than the owls uh, doing this. And then you have like the slugs in Flushed Away, the Artisan Animation film. Of
1: course, yeah.
2: And the, the slugs, I love those guys. I would say that those are the closest approximation to the owls in this. And it's because they, they keep coming back in and singing different songs and stuff like that, um, except they don't do the narration. Uh, they, they're they just focused on the songs and stuff like that. Again, that goes back to how brilliant the script is and how many spinning plates there are. And you know, you forget all the elements and you forget that it's done very much like a, a three-act play. I guess you would say it's like having the the type of plays that Rango himself is putting on at the beginning, middle, and end of the film. Right. You know, it, it harkens back to the, the, the idea of the theatrical stage play.
0: Which is why I would kind of actually equate them more to, like, uh, in Little Shop of Horrors, Christelle, Ronette, and Chiffon the Greek chorus girls. Right. Yes. Where they're like kind of coming in and out of the movie and they don't like distract, but they actually, they kind of transition from one story element to the next.
2: Exactly, exactly.
0: But you know, we've been talking about Rango for a while. So why don't we go ahead and let's do a wrap up here. Let's do our final thoughts. Pedro, uh your final thoughts on Rango. Any other things we didn't mention or just your overall summation about Rango?
2: I just really love this movie. I would say that this is really good entry-level adult animation. We kind mm-hmm. of, Uh, struck on struck on that earlier if you have a uh, a child that you don't want to necessarily introduce to violent animation such as uh you know what you would find in like a heavy metal or japanese animation like akira uh, if you want to just get them into darker elements this watership down fantastic mr fox these are really great pg uh, darker animation with uh, little edgier themes. Uh, and they're also really good to, uh, for people that are coming of age or even for, for people that are just kind of at a hard place in their lives. And they, you know, for me, it still speaks to me as, as someone who's still trying to find their way. And I think that there's a lot of power in that. There's not a lot of animated films that can still speak to someone of any age and speak on different levels, be a great piece of animation, be and also be a emotional spiritual journey
1: uh uh, brian your final thoughts on rango oh yes um i mean this is a weird one for me though because like i like i mentioned earlier like i remember when this movie came out and i was weirdly enough the perfect age for it even though i never saw it because i i just had an aversion to westerns but i've seen it twice now and it really has grown on me even more on a second viewing because I mean, you, you, you put it very, really well Savager. like it, it is a movie that is perfect for someone like coming of age where maybe like, not just like they're not ready, but also like when I was a kid, like my mom just like wouldn't let me watch like stuff that was too, too violent, but this feels like kind of a really perfect middle ground of it is still an adventure movie with lots of like fun characters. And there's really great bits and gags and jokes and stuff like that. But it is also a genuine Western. And a movie that loves Westerns, clearly. Like, it shows Gore Verbinski's love of Westerns. And also the way that he kind of subtly puts in, like, anti-capitalist messaging in his movies. Which is kind of the plot of the movie, right? Like, evil man wants to take away water so that he can fund, like... Las Vegas or whatever, you know, it, it, I I just love the way that he puts political messaging into his movies, like even the pirates movies, watching those again, I was like, Oh, these are like about British colonialism. And, you know, the horrors of that in a weird way, even though they're still, it's still a Disney movie, you know, kind of just that element of it. I really love. I love the animation. I think it's just still stunning to this day. Like it is one of these weird, like this era of cgi animation where it's getting pretty good actually like a lot of those early 2000s ones which don't hold up but around this time when we're getting like tangled and you're getting frozen a couple years later where like it feels like oh okay they've managed to make it look realistic but also still kind of retain that cartoonish elements and even though this is kind of a different process because of the um what do they call it? Emotion capture? Is that what the, the right? Kind that of... was the kind of like the press version of what they were calling it. Yeah, right process. Um, even though it is that, you still get like so much of the the style. Like just, it's so weird. It's so wacky. The characters move in such a weird way. There's all like the weird like um, you know, like Mouse Hunt. There's all these like weird like Rube Goldberg kind of sequences that like kind of like cascade <laughs> out and. Yeah, the cast is great. Some of the fucking coolest character design ever, maybe. I, I just, anytime I can just watch, like, the Rattlesnake Jake. He's just, he's insane. It's so cool. So many sections I love from this. I love that Flight of the Valkyries section. And, yeah, it, it really is growing on me. And I, I really have just kind of gotten a new appreciation for Gore Verbinski as truly just like you mentioned earlier, like the kind of almost last of a breed of these kind of filmmakers who make films on a massive budget, like 100 million plus, and still kind of retain a lot of that creativity and imagination and interesting, like innovative qualities. And yeah, I I, I just love it. But yeah, Thomas, what do what I
0: uh yeah, I agree with what both of you guys have said. I think it's it's a really unique and as we mentioned, atypical sort of like big budget uh, kind of uh, uh, animated film that definitely feels like of a, a a different breed that just doesn't exist anymore. And it kind of weirdly ties into a lot of th- the thematics I think of this movie, where we we didn't talk a lot about sort of like the mayor and sort of the reveal of like how he's like this evil capitalist. You know, sort of person who's trying to like really destroy whatever this like old west town has. Like he's just like, oh, it's all dying, it's gonna be gone, and using Rango basically as a pawn for like, yeah, sure, you can be like their hero or whatever to distract them, basically. While I continue to like deplete their water supply and just try and you know become a businessman. Even like, I love when he turns on Rattlesnake Jake and just like, no, look, there's no need for gunslingers now. We're businessmen, right? Guys, just like we got new hats. (laughs) was just a great point in this movie. But yeah, it feels like it kind of like relates to this movie where it feels kind of like as animation has become so much more of like a homogenized industry of like it has to be a Pixar, it has to be a DreamWorks, or it can be like a Disney modern one, which feels like we're kind of still like extrapolating from like a lot of the Pixar-isms that were like created by the Toy Story movies and really homogenized forward after that. And I think it kind of fits for like Rango as a movie which feels truly just like this weird, odd experiment that could really only happen at this particular time with this particular kind of, like, directorial vision behind it, or even, like, you know, the for all the problems with him, the depth element of it, of just, like, let's actually just do this, like, weird, cartoonish uh, kind of exploration of, like, what the the Old West was and what that kind of, like, means in the modern context, but at the same time just have, like, these, like, incredibly... Uh, elaborate action sequences and also this existentialism we've been talking about, about, like, what you sort of, like, your places in the universe and everything like that. It's such a unique, odd beast of a movie that, um, you know, I would hope that in, like, a modern context where now we've had, like, you know, some of these animated franchises not really panning out as much like a lot of other big franchises, I hope it kind of allows for an interesting new burst of, like, animation that kind of maybe feels more in this vein as opposed to, like, what we've been kind
1: of getting recently. I did just think of one more thing. Just, just one, one more thing. thing. One, one thing. more thing. Yes. Right. A-, a really interesting thing, I think, to kind of talk about, which we're going to talk about like the the Oscar category is uh, that this was in, but I think this is a really interesting Oscar win because we mentioned it's not Disney or Pixar. And I was like, oh, wh- why is that? What-, what was Disney and Pixar putting out this year? And I realized Disney put out the 2011 uh, Winnie the Pooh movie, which I think is pretty good, by the way. I, I really like that movie but then mm-hmm. like pixar was putting out like cars 2 which right. is really the, the the their bottom like truly just the nadir of pixar cinema and made a lot of money but is so awful and so i think it's it's inter- interesting to think about that like, the two the one year that disney and pixar just disney pixar flopped this kind of swooped in to kind of win best animated picture which i think i think is so is so cool right
2: yeah, I mean they—they, uh, they, you might be able to argue that they almost did that in 2001, in 2002, uh, in that they kind of DreamWorks swooped in and stole it from Monsters Inc. I love—I love both Shrek and Monsters Inc. I, but I would say on, a, on most days, I would probably pick Monsters Inc. And, and Shrek was such an outlier that year; it was a cultural storm. There was no way I don't think they would have not yeah. given it to him. And even, you know, the next year, they gave it to Spirited Away. Right, know? right. Yeah. So yeah. for a while there, they were for transgressive animation. And then they realized that Disney pays a lot of the bills. And so, you know, it became the Disney category because, you know, they they have the money to put in the animation. So obviously they're going to dominate animation.
0: Well, I think it's partially that and also kind of like the stereotype of Academy voters being like, well, my kids love Finding Nemo. It's yeah. like, I haven't Finding right. Nemo. And it's something like I
1: can sit through or whatever. Right. Uh, exactly.
2: Which- and it's right. also what they will see. They're not going to see the Miyazaki movie, you know, because right. the the contemplative two hour Miyazaki movie. They're not going to see that. Though these, these types of premium animations, we don't get them anymore. Transgressive animations. And I mean... Something that I'm working on right now, obviously adjacent to the documentary, is I'm trying to get Ralph Bakshi in my documentary and do an episode. I just signed on Charles Swenson and Picha, who uh, are two other X-rated animators. Everybody else is dead. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: We need adult animation. We need voices in adult animation. We need adult animation in particular that is not just Fart jokes and smoking weed and saying <laughs> and saying fuck and and you know and being horny. You know we need real adult animation, and, I, and unfortunately, in the mid two thousands, there it became just about dick and fart and fat. You know all all the the terrible jokes that we could. You know being anti PC. You know it was the South Park effect and things like Drawn Together, and uh, we've kind of ruined that. We need to get back to. Films like Bakshi did, which are more adult in theme and are not afraid to tackle those themes in a non-condescending way.
0: Which is especially interesting given even, like, we should mention that, like, Rango won Best Animated Feature, but it was nominated against, like, a couple more familiar ones, like Kung Fu Panda 2 and Puss in Boots, the original Puss in Boots, but then also the French movie A Cat in Paris, and then the Spanish movie uh, Chico and Rita, which is, like, such a fascinating, like, lineup that includes no Disney movies like we were mentioning earlier. And even, like, something like a Kung Fu Panda 2 is, like, very, like, experimental in its animation, very odd for what it's trying to do and I think that's the thing that we're kind of missing is that like that kind of diversity in animation and there's a quote actually that I have here in the notes from Verbinski who mentions some of the influences you're referring to where he says quote "Uh, there are shackles with budgets and profit margins with animation you want to compete with what they're doing at Pixar and DreamWorks, there's a price tag, which just, in terms of achieving that quality level. What happened to the Ralph Bakshis of the world? We're all sitting here talking about family entertainment, does animation have to be family entertainment? I think at that cost, yes. There's the the bullseye you have to hit but when you miss it at a little bit and you do something interesting the bullseye is going to move audiences want something new they just can't articulate what and i think you know like a rango feels like something different it feels like something interesting that honestly you know I, I hope like he mentioned that we can kind of like now that illumination can't just put out migration and make it a massive hit Or whatever. Like, (laughs) that we can actually have just, like, interesting things that, like, come out of it. Like, I hope, you know, like, a Rango can kind of, you know, hopefully we can go back to, like, you were mentioning, something more experimental, something more interesting that isn't talking down to kids like Rango isn't. Rango feels like family entertainment in the best kind of way where it's, like, it appeals to, like, any member of a family. Where it's, like, you can have kids, like, have, like, fun with some of these jokes, an adult have fun with those jokes, even an older person have fun with like some of the references in the western genre and stuff like that it feels like we're, we're kind of missing that from modern animation and hopefully you know we can get something similar to Rango in the future uh but let's go ahead and uh, wrap up on Rango and let's go ahead and do our regular segment between the lines <laughs> So uh, Between the Lines is a segment that we do every episode where Brian, myself, and a guest, if they so choose, uh, can recommend another movie that, you know, was either related to the one that we're talking about or has, you know, uh, some kind of connection to, like, say, an A for a typical choice uh, for this particular season. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and go first... And uh, my recommendation was another nominee uh, a couple years after Rango won. Um, it didn't win Best Animated Feature, but it was nominee. And uh, it feels very underseen, especially compared to what won the year that uh, it came out. I have um, what was released here, at least, as My Life as a Zucchini, um, which is a French film uh, that is uh, stop-motion animated. And is basically the story of uh, this young boy um, who is named Zucchini. Um, who basically is, uh, at the beginning, uh, ends up being orphaned in a horrible accident, Um, and he ends up becoming a part of, like, an orphanage. He ends up moving there, and he ends up, you know, kind of meeting a bunch of kids who have similarly had, like, issues with, uh, you know, either parents who have died or parents who have been abusive and stuff like that. And it's just about this kid kind of, like, living his little life. And uh, I should mention, it's uh, directed by uh, Claude Barras, but also one of the screenplay writers is Celine Sciamma, who you all might know from, like, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, um, among some other things. And uh, it's a sweet little um, stop-motion French movie that deceptively looks very, like, cutesy in a way where um, I would definitely recommend, if you um, do watch this and see you have children, um, probably temper your uh, expectations in terms of uh, what they can handle because it is uh, the very opening of this movie in which you find out basically how Zucchini gets orphaned is very upsetting, very untraditional, uh, very atypical as it were for like a stop motion animation movie, especially. Um, But it, at the same time does have a lot of great sort of just interaction between kids that feels like very genuine, very sweet, very earnest. Um, And it's dealing with like a lot of complicated subject matter. um, But at the same time, it's like beautiful stop motion style and it also is like we mentioned it's not talking down to kids at all i feel like a kid can with proper context and a proper sort of like understanding from an adult can like really get engaged in this like very sweet earnest story about just like kids who feel kind of lost like coming together and uh it's an amazing little movie it also is only 65 minutes long it's very short but it does such a great job of really investing you in these uh little kid characters and despite how cute it looks really grounding the emotions in a really true, true vibrant way. It uh, feels like it kind of got lost, especially this was the year that Zootopia won for Best Animated Feature, which I would say, yeah, uh, a movie that has uh, aged like milk uh, <laughs> yes. for various reasons. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think this one definitely deserves a lot more attention. I don't know, have any of you seen My Life as a Zucchini?
1: I have. I, I remember watching it around the time it came out, and, yeah, I agree with everything you said. It, it is such a beautiful and cute movie and yet it like we talked about with rango of like very mature themes and uh, there's something i think about a lot with not to shit on the mario movie again but i remember when the mario movie (laughs) came out last year um i think david lowry he he released this kind of post where he was talking about like animated movies and kids and like why do we have to talk down to kids and like that movie especially is a movie that treats children with respect and really treats their emotions and their feelings with a lot of respect. Which a lot of, like, the, you know... God bless a lot of what Pixar does. But, like, they don't tend to do that a lot. And they do tend to talk down to and condescend a bit. Especially modern Pixar movies tend to do that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And especially DreamWorks and Illum- Illumination. They they do that, like, all the time. But I love that that movie, Cougette. I just love anytime he's just like, Cougette. It's adorable. Right. Yeah. It's a movie that really treats children with respect and really treats what they're going through and and everything with respect which i love i loved seeing it in animated movies um in any movie really but like yeah it's a really fantastic movie and yeah it is really short um in it's lovely it's a lovely movie all right um brian go ahead what's your recommendation for between the lines this week so for my pick which i I struggled with this week I'm, i'm picking a movie that won no oscars and wasn't even considered for an Oscar because no one, no one liked it. <laughs> uh, another Gore Verbinski film. The last movie he made up until this point. I'm recommending A Cure for Wellness. Holy shit, this movie. Um, <laughs> you know, we talked a lot about Gore Verbinski's kind of sensibilities when it comes to, like, adventure and really fun type of movies. And yet he also is a guy, we, we mentioned Del Toro earlier, who is really interested in horror and genre in this way, but in a way where he doesn't like cheapening it and he really elevates it to, it, I, I can't use that word anymore because elevated horror is a stupid term, but like <laughs> he really elevates like horror to like a, a, an adult movie kind of way. Um, and this movie, which came out in, in 2016, 2017, is such a fucking weird movie. It, it has so much of what he has kind of done in other movies, including Rango, of like this very anti-capitalist message in this movie with in which capitalism is literally a disease, a societal <laughs> like disease that is infecting everything and everyone. And yet it is also this quasi lovecraftian story. I, I love the setup for this movie, which is maybe one of my favorite setups. In in a story, from a story perspective, which is a group of people hire a guy to find another guy, right? So this movie is, like, all these Wall Street people hire Dane DeHaan's character to go find uh, the, the, like, CEO who's in, like, the Swiss Alps. And they're like, go find him, bring him back. And then, of course, like, madness happens and and whatever. But, like, I've just always loved that idea. Like, I love it in, like, Apocalypse Now. Um, I love a movie like... um. At Astra, which is like basically apocalypse now in space, um, <laughs> but I just love that conceit, and I just love the kind of Lovecraftian elements of this, of of this secret uh, facility where secrets are housed, and it's got this ancient history there, and it's very dark. It's, it, it, it the castle just looks incredible. All the sets look. Unbelievable. This movie looks phenomenal. I um I got a Blu-ray of it, which was kind of harder to track down than you would think. Because they're all just off the shelves. Everyone <laughs> wants to get a cure for wellness. <laughs> Give me that cure, man. It's <laughs> it is such a crazy weird movie, and I understand why, like, no one liked it upon release, because it's a two and a half hour very slow and kind of oppressive horror movie. But it really was kind of the thing that really hammered down that Gore Verbinski and Mines as like sensibilities are really tied together. I just love the way that like, I I talked about how I love his slapstick, you know, kind of goofiness, but I love the way that he handles like this, these darker elements, the way he's shooting them with just these really incredibly expressive angles and cinematography choices, Um, Would
2: would you argue that that is his one for me like he did a bunch that he did an entire career of one for them so he could do that film.
1: It certainly feels that way because looking at Gore Verbinski's career there is like before this he makes the Lone Ranger which is a massive bomb and then like in between that is of course um, he was also tied to direct the secret life of Walter Mitty the like Ben Stiller movie before I guess, right. he took over and, and decided to direct it. And then of course there was the Bioshock movie, which he was like really attached to. He wanted to do all kinds of crazy, insane sounding like practical sets. And I feel like he carried a lot of that over to this movie. And it, it certainly feels like a real passion project. It, it, it almost feels like he has nothing to lose making this movie at times. Like it's so bold in, in so many ways and so not looking to please, like, a shareholder or make money or anything. Which is, of course, why this like, it's his last movie. He hasn't made a movie since. It it, it did not do well. I don't know. It, it also is one of these movies that has gained kind of a, a small cult following, I think, because he wanted to make a Bioshock game. I, I'm pretty sure Gore is a gamer. You can just feel a lot of that in this movie, I think. Like, just a lot of the way that he's telling the story, it feels very, like... Like, like I need to know if Gore Verbinski has played Bloodborne, because I feel a lot of those elements in this movie, and I love a lot of those elements, and I love this movie. I think it's great. Yeah, A Cure for Wellness. It's a divisive movie. I watched
0: this actually around the time it was released, actually with you, Brian, when we initially knew each other. Um, and uh, we were at a screening where it was very clear everyone fucking loathed it entirely. Just, it was... And I remember having mixed thoughts on it at the time, and then I rewatched it earlier today, honestly, as part of, like, prep for the show. And I like it a lot more than I did previously. I still have some issues. I only think the two-and-a-half-hour runtime is necessary. I think you can cut a fair amount of stuff, make it, like, a solid two-hour movie. And also, I'm not a big fan of the score, particularly that, like, that one-child-theme That like, keeps constantly repeating throughout the whole movie necessarily. But um, I think it's a better vehicle for Dahan than some of the... Because that was around the time he was trying to... They were trying to inject him into stuff like um, Valerian and stuff like that, which feels like (laughs) it doesn't quite work for him, I would say, in terms of, like, being a leading man in that kind of movie. Versus this feels like it works perfectly, where, like, he's a sniveling kind of asshole... Who slowly realizes, like, oh wait, my entire existence is meaningless, oh, and God. like all the stuff that unravels about that. And it was also, this is the first time I saw Mia Goth in anything. Right, she was just yeah. like in right from the start, just like what a peculiar actress, right, in yes. like so many ways. Um, and also, Jason Isaacs is very good. I would say it's one of the better good. recent uses of him. Yeah. Um, sort of like a main villain role and stuff like that. I think it, it's a much better movie than I think people gave it credit for at the time. I would definitely say that it deserves a lot more attention. Definitely does, doesn't deserve to be like his last movie as of yet, necessarily. Definitely, no. you know, kind of, we've, we've referenced, say, like, Spike Jones making another movie. Gore making another movie. Please. There's Gore a few gets- things.
1: <laughs> there's a few things he's attached to, one of which I think is like the most interesting thing, which is this thing called Sand King's which is a um, right. like a george r r martin script or a story um which sounds interesting which go for it i i would love for him to make something else one, one of those things in like
0: a lot of like development turnaround which has happened with yeah. a lot of things like he was one of many people attached to that gambit movie that never happened oh man not the gambit movie <laughs> right <laughs> yeah one of many people got handed that hot potato and then threw it to like doug lyman i guess i don't know after that <laughs> or whoever. Uh, but yeah, Cure for Wellness, pretty solid. I would definitely recommend if you maybe didn't even like it the last time you saw it, if you did somehow. We're one of the few people who saw it in theaters uh, back in like 2017. I would say give another shot. But, Saavedro, what is your recommendation?
2: Well, after those recommendations, I'm going to feel kind of bad because I am unfortunately recommending a Johnny Depp film. Uh, and it's because there are there are multiple ties. The reason why I'm recommending this is because this is not a traditional Johnny Depp film. As we had stated previously, obviously, the shtick of Depp ran dry in the mid-2010s, and uh, he has not recovered from that ever since. If you want to see Johnny Depp when he was not a fuck-up, and he he was still at a very interesting, provocative time in his career. In 1995, he was in a a very interesting film, and in my opinion, maybe his best work uh, is in... Uh, 1995's Dead Man. It's been described as an acid Western. It's directed by Jim Jarmusch. So if you are familiar with the Jarmusch aesthetic, uh, which is very difficult difficult to explain if you have not seen his his style of films. Yeah. But it is uh, it's shot entirely in monochrome. The cinematographer is Robbie Mueller, who's the same... He worked with Wim Wenders on a lot of different films. You have definitely seen his work on To Live and Die in L.A., down by Law, Lars von Trier's Breaking the Waves, Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, Repo Man, Paris, Texas. The guy's got a lot of great credits behind him, so the, mu- the movie looks fantastic. The score is done by Neil Young, uh, so it has this really trailing, otherworldly, wow. It's all guitars. It's yeah, just all just, like, yes. yeah. It, it has a very trippy feel to it. It has a, a couple of different ties to Rango. So not only does it have Johnny Depp, it also has Alfred Molina.
0: Yes.
1: All oh, right.
2: <laughs> Another tie is that it is the final film of Robert Mitchum. Uh, and Rango is the final voice role in, in one of the final roles of Ned Beatty. So mm-hmm. it, it kind of has that tie of old school actors. This is one of their final roles. It also has Lance Henriksen, Crispin Glover, Michael Wincott, John Hurt, Iggy Pop, Gabriel Byrne, uh, Billy Bob Thornton. So it's an incredible cast. It is not traditional. Something great that this film does is it has a very uh, non-stereotypical Native American perspective. Uh, it has There's entire sections that are in Cree and Blackfoot that are not translated at all for Americans. And they're specifically put into the film to be inside jokes for the Cree and the Blackfoot people. That's incredible. Never see any movie that has the balls to do something like that. It went out of its way to portray Native Americans as accurately as possible. They're not bumbling idiots or you know they're uh, or drunkards or anything like that. They're realistic human characters. The crow character from Rango ripped straight out of the Native American character Nobody from Dead Man. Uh, but I think overall it, it holds up very well. And if you are wanting something similar in uh, vein to to Rango that is also a Western uh, and also has a stacked cast and also is very trippy trippy visually and uh, is not of, afraid of being about something else, uh, then I think you would enjoy it.
1: Yeah, I I love this movie. It's one of my favorite Jarmusch movies, I think, um, and it's really grown on me as I've seen it like multiple times. Maybe one of the best scores in any movie, in my opinion. Like I I just I love a a, a all guitar score, but particularly just Neil Young's guitar. It just it sounds so like I don't know. He's doing something to that guitar, and it's 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 like (laughs) it's otherworldly in a way. Like just I don't know. There's something about it that I think is so gorgeous and yet like menacing and ethereal almost even though it is like just electric guitar i don't have i don't i don't want to tell the full thing but there's this really great story that jarmusch tells about doing the the score for it where he like basically filled a microphone a room with microphones and neil young was in it and they kind of had like jim jarmusch was kind of like i don't know if this is gonna work because like blah 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 blah, and neil young like overheard them and was like i got it it's fine and then jarmusch kind of tells us like he ends the story by going like, never, never doubt Neil Young. He's, he's too smart for everybody. Never, (laughs) never doubt him. Um, Yeah, I I love this movie. I think it's great. It is so truly trippy and in in, in that kind of spiritual way though. And like, it it feels so otherworldly, so weird in that Jarmusch way, but also like in that Jarmusch way of there are hangout elements of it. And yet there are, like, weird, just mad, crazy bits in it, um, which is the, what he does so well. Um, and I think it also is a great depth performance. It really is, like, if you want to see when he he really had the juice, like, this is a really great example. Understated. Ant- Ant- yeah, it, it's, very, it's a very understated performance. He's not doing, like, a ton of... Yeah, and like you said, the cast is in, is incredible. Like I, I love Jared Harris and uh, Gabriel Byrne as well being in it as well. I love both of them. But yeah, um, Thomas, have you seen this movie? I just saw this movie a couple oh, days yes. ago
0: <laughs> because Pedro told me he was recommending this. So I'm like, you know, I finally need to see this because for a while, Dead Man was just kind of like my sort of poster child for like when I was like younger, just like, this is an art movie. Like, I heard from so many people just like, this is a, a really great little art movie. But I hadn't seen it for so long. And I decided, you know, it's on Criterion Channel. Mm-hmm. As of, I think, still when we're releasing this, it'll be on Criterion Channel. Yeah, so I decided to finally watch it. And, um, yeah, it's a great movie, I think. Especially, like, I agree with you, it's a very understated depth performance. But just to shout out uh, the the guy who plays Nobody, Gary Farmer, who's a great First Nations actor. Who's been in, like, a bunch yeah. of different things. But is incredible in this particular movie. He does such a great job, especially, like, his whole backstory and the tragedy of that how he comes from like two different, like his uh, parents from two different tribes. And then he was basically like kidnapped over to Britain where he was treated as just like, um, you know, as a spectacle essentially. And then he kind of like learning from those ways and then coming back only to be abandoned by his people and all this other stuff. So being nobody, it feels like such a tragic, like really earnest, like performance that bounces off of debt pretty well. And like you mentioned, all the other great people in that amazing cast, like it's a great final performance for Mitchum. John Hurt shows up and he's really great. For a little bit, um, yeah, and the, the whole scene where it's like it's Iggy Pop, Jared Harris, and Billy Bob Thornton, It's such a weird trio so for weird. the two of them to run into. It's so <laughs> wild, and I, I also love the way it looks. Particularly any of the scenes in those uh, in like the woods, where it's those stark like white trees, oh, yeah. that are just like it looks gorgeous, like truly like an incredibly well rendered movie. I I haven't seen a lot of Jarmusch. I want to catch up more. I mean, I would still say my favorite is still uh, Ghost Dog. Uh, But this is, like, not far from it by any degree. It's definitely one I would recommend to people. Even if you kind of have that aversion to Depp, it is, I agree, one of the better examples of him trying to shed that, like, 21 Jump Street kind of, like, boyish good looks thing and doing it with, like, an actual interesting kind of, like, art movie as opposed to, you know, doing a funny voice and a goofy accent. But... Yeah, let's go ahead and repeat our titles like we usually do uh, for Between the Lines, in case you want to add them to your watch list, some letterboxd and whatnot. Um, my recommendation was the 2016 Academy Award-nominated animated film, My
1: Life is a Zucchini or My Life is a Coget, if you want to go with the French title. Uh, yes, and I had Gore Verbinski's 2017 film, A Cure for Wellness. And I
2: had 1995's Jim Jarmusch film, Dead Man.
0: Yes, and we're going to be uh, wrapping up here. So we want to, you know, thank some people as we head out. Uh, we want to thank uh, Burial Grid for our music for the show. Purchase this music at burialgrid.com. Thanks to Michelle Kyle for our artwork. Uh, find her at mishkyle 96 on Twitter. And thanks to our supporters on Patreon, patreon.com slash cinema number two letter. For just $1 a month, you all get access to, you know, bonus podcasts we put out every month. And also you get to pick certain episodes we do for seasons. Uh, we should mention, you know, this is going to be our uh, season finale. and We're going to take a bit of a break. Uh, throughout March on the main feed but on Patreon we got a lot of stuff coming up Brian we got our Los Awards which is our version of the Oscars which should have been up by the time this is released uh, where Brian and I you know pick our best film best actors and cinematography all this other stuff Uh, we're in the process of getting ready to record that soon but it should be up by the time this episode's out there's also going to be we're going to do stuff like another uh, one of our video rabbit holes where Brian and I are going to talk over a bunch of different Oscar clips that I've put together a big YouTube playlist uh, that you'll all have access to if you're a patron. And uh, we'll do uh, some audio reviews uh, in the meantime. Like, uh, we would have done Driveaway Dolls recently, the um, Ethan Cohen solo movie. And then in March, we're going to be doing one, of course, we gotta, about Dune 2. Dune. Uh, we, gotta, we gotta go full Dune. Uh, you know, we talked about sand and deserts a lot here. Oh, <sighs> boy. Get ready for us to return to Arrakis. Desert power. of that. Yes, desert power, for sure. And the big thing, our big bonus episode for March is going to be, you know, back when this was the Double Edged Double Bill feed, we did March Madness. Uh, We're returning to that this year with a big March Madness thing about movie monsters. Yes, we're talking about... A bunch of the, you know, different, like, 32 different titles, some of which were chosen by our patrons, some of which were chosen by Brian and myself and our guests that will be on that particular episode. Those tend to go long, so it's going to be, if you're missing out on content on the main feed, oh boy, that's going to be a long-ass episode (laughs) (laughs) where we just, you know, pit different movie monsters against each other in a March Madness-style bracket and determine the best movie monster um, as, you know, is law. It'll be a confirmed law. This is exa- what the best movie monster of all time is. We will determine that. Yep. Scientifically, actually. Scientifically, yes, that's true. Um, and uh, you'll get access to all that stuff for just the $1 a month, and it really helps out the show, really keeps things going. And, you know, not to uh, maybe pull a certain card, but uh, this episode, if all goes right, it will be coming out on my birthday. So, you know, wow. good birthday present. Become a patron. Happy sure. birthday.
1: Watch Rango. For, yeah, for Thomas's <laughs> happy birthday. early <laughs> birthday.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, if we we're recording this a bit earlier, yes, but uh, yeah. So for just like I said, the one dollar can access to all that stuff. But we have one more person to thank, and that's our guest, Savedro. Thank you so much yes. for being a guest. Thank you. Really appreciate it so much. Go ahead and plug yourself. Where can people find you on the internet?
2: Well, uh, thank you first off for having me on the show. The fact that anybody is uh, s- takes me seriously at all is wonderful to hear. It's an honor to be on a show like this and talk to people that care so much about cinema. If I'm going to plug anything, it would be my YouTube series, which is Sights Obscene. While making my big project, which is Aberration History of the NC-17, I had always wanted to make a YouTube series that was specifically about censorship and the rating system. Right now I'm in the process of creating themed episodes uh, that specifically feature interviews that I'm now getting. So if you want to find out more, any of my accounts are at Savedro, S-A-V-E-Y-T-R-O. Or you can find me at Sites Obscene on YouTube. And then uh, you can also find out more about the uh, aberration there. But I just, I always do updates on Twitter. Twitter is the best account to, to follow me. It's not the best, you know, and unfortunately is a terrible website. And uh, it's, it's worth, <laughs> worth has gone down a lot but um, every single day I am posting about stuff. And so it's more important than ever that people would be aware, not just of ratings, but of censorship in general.
0: But I would recommend everybody definitely, like, um, I I will say this much, uh, with Twitter, as much as that site is, like, dying horribly, um, I think you're one of the better follows that I have on there, quite frankly. You have, like, such interesting, like, tidbits that you put out there uh, on the site. And also I do agree, I love uh, sites obscene, uh, particularly you just recently re-put out the uh, PG-13 F-bombs is a really good one. Uh, you can also, you know, follow us in our little rinky-dink operation at Cinema Number Two Letter on the various socials like, you know, Instagram, Blue Sky, uh, Twitter, whatever hell site you use. Um, And you can find me on uh, Twitter and Letterboxes at NotTheWho'sTommy. And you also do some writing at uh, MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and at film-cred.com. I just want to shout out, uh, during the break as well, um, I will be uh, doing a recording with uh, Rafe Telsch, uh, as well as uh, with Emily Slade and Mel Gore, um, where we're going to be talking about the Oscars. For this year. Um, you know, we've been doing this the last couple years where we talked about the major nominees and what we thought about them. Uh, we'll be doing that again this time. I'm not sure which feed of Rafe's it'll be on. If it's the Have Not Seen This feed, which has been dormant for a while, or if it'll be on his Never Say Die podcast. But uh, if you follow us on social media, I'll make sure to, you know, post it for sure, uh, whichever one that's going to be on. Um, so yeah, just follow me and I'll make sure to post uh, that fun discussion that'll come out before the Oscar ceremony happens.
1: Uh, Yes, and I'm also on that awful place known as Twitter.com still sometimes um, at B-R-Y-A-N-D-R-A-D-E and the number three. Uh, Or you can also follow me on Letterboxd where I'm much more active as I watch a bunch of movies and uh, make my way through the Coen Brothers movies still. So uh, yeah, that's so much fun. So yeah, follow me on there.
0: And for more of us in audio form, please, you know, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts out there. If you're listening on Talk Home Society, why not listen to all the other great shows that are here on the network? And you can also dig into the archives in our Podbean main feed uh, for, you know, all four seasons of Cinema to the Letter and also all the old Double Edge Double Bill stuff you can find on there and nothing else if you can't. Support us, uh, you know, on the Patreon, we get it, money can be tight, but the free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around to give us more visibility, make us the true uh, sort of hero and spirit of the West. But, on that note, as I mentioned, this is the end of our fourth season, and we're going to be taking a bit of a break in March, but we're coming back on April 23rd with Season 5, which will be very interesting because it's going to be the first time uh, we're going to be covering a franchise as uh, one of our seasons we're going to be doing a season starting on april 23rd about godzilla that's right godzilla has a 70th anniversary this year and you'll be able to uh you know listen to us talk about and you might be asking hey how do you fit the eye for indy and some of the other stuff with your format into the show don't worry we we talked about this brian i made it work out we have and bent those rules let me tell (laughs) you Oh boy, Bentham in interesting ways. You'll find out. Uh, but we should mention, you know, what we talked about the Patreon earlier. About a week specifically from when this episode is coming out on uh, March 6th, that Wednesday, we'll be putting out a poll uh, for one of the episodes in the Godzilla season. You all get to pick uh, the A for a typical choice between Godzilla versus Hedora, or Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, or uh, Godzilla versus Megalon, two of the 70s era Godzilla movies, two very weird movies. Odd Godzilla movies that um, I'm curious to, you know, cover either. I'm a big Godzilla fan. Brian has seen a couple, but isn't yep. quite as well versed. So this will be a bit more of an introduction to him. So uh, yeah, definitely if you become a patron, you can vote between those two movies and we'll cover that as our season finale for next season. And uh, we should also just have one brief shout out as well, that uh, in March we will put something out on the main feed. We'll be putting out um, the animation March Madness from last year, back during the double Edge double bill days. So you'll be able to hear myself and Adam Thomas, the host of Double Edge Bill, as well as friends of the show Hyle uh, Peralta, Rafe Telsch, and Scott Johnson, uh, determining the best animated film. Um, Pluck that from behind the Patreon paywall and put it on the main feed in March, so you get to listen to that one was like nearly five fucking hours long. Um, so, a lot of fun there. Uh, that'll be near the end of the month, to coincide with the one that'll be on the Patreon uh, for March Madness this particular year. And, uh, you know, on that note everybody, I think it's time we end this episode. It's time, uh, you know, we write off on our bats. Let's do it. Let's get out of here. Let's write off on those bats together. Dude, I'd put that on a tortilla. <laughs>